Hello and welcome to the Lavender Menace podcast. My name is Sunny. I use they them pronouns, she, her for lesbians. And I am very excited for today's episode, for tonight's episode, everyone. Um, How about you, Renaissance? I am also very excited. For a moment, I forgot. Oh, also, Renaissance, other co-host, they, them, she, her for lesbians. I'm very excited. I almost forgot what our shared media was. And then when I remembered, I was like, oh, yes, this is going to mm-hmm. be a good episode. Mm-hmm. Very excited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So today we are going to be going through our hot takes. As usual, today we have two, both scathing, both very hot, 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 hot. And then hot, we will hot, be. Hot, <laughs> it's like uh, Allison. Yes. Um, yes. When she goes like. X, 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 X. <laughs> yes, exactly. J- just between us is the blueprint. Mm-hmm. Like, like they're like yeah. the millennial parents of the Gen Z us. Like, that's really what they're 100%. doing. A hundred percent. Like, one hundred percent. Yeah, it, real ones will know who Gabby Dunn and Allison Raskin are. If you, if those names don't ring a bell, why are you here? No. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if you listen to us. You, you have, have to know, to know who they are. are. And the thing is, is that, like, okay, before we get into it, like, do you think you're more of, like, an Allison or a Gabby? Or, like, how do you think that's changed over time? Like, because obviously now I we have the joke of, like, are you more of a Sunny or a Renaissance? But, yeah. But, like, I wonder what our listeners think. Like, which of us are more, is more the Allison versus the Gabby? Like, what do you think? It depends. Mm-hmm. It depends on the situation. Definitely when I was younger, I was much more of an Allison. When I was younger, I was 100% a Gabby. 100%. (laughs) See, that's what I was thinking. But uh as I've gotten older, I've become more more of a Gabby. And Mm -hmm. I think when it comes to running the pod, like the actual, what it takes to run a podcast, you are the Allison and I'm the Gabby. (laughs) And that Allison has complained multiple times that if Allison didn't drag Gabby or send a thousand emails or reminders that something has to get done, it wouldn't get done. That's very much our dynamic. However, you have the much more be gay, do crime mentality that Gabby has. Where I'm like, Sunny, laws do exist. Like, I know you don't like them, and but some I'm more of them like, shouldn't. I'm more like asexual, like re re Allison. You know what I mean? Like, in ter- at least in yeah, terms no, of that's, like, yeah, no, that's that's why like right. it depends on it's what situational. What it's yeah, exactly. Ugh. But I definitely think that there's never a moment where one of my behaviors couldn't be classified as yeah. Allison or Gabby. I don't I don't exist outside of that. Yeah, it's always a binary. The only binary. Allison or Gabby. Yeah, the only, the binary. only binary I live by is that. Yes. Yes. Uh, exactly. Well, anyways, so after we talk about our hot takes today, we will be moving into discussing our shared media as usual. And this time we will be discussing Passing, directed by Rebecca Hall. Um, came out 2021, so this year, quite recently. It's on Netflix, and it's an adaptation of the Nella Larson novella, Passing, which was published during, like, the Harlem Renaissance, but went largely overlooked during the time that it was published, only for it to be, like, sort of revived, and I I think in the 90s and 2000s and now. Um, And then after that, we'll be giving each other media recommendations, as we usually do. Our three-part structure. It is, it is, um... Reliable. The one thing that's consistent about uh, yeah. this podcast. And not even, because we started season three with just us ranting about biphobia for like an hour that's and a half. That's true. But like, it needed to happen. That was, no, that, that, was, that was, it was, it was a therapy an environment session. outside of our control. <laughs> yeah, literally. That was not an executive decision on our behalf to abandon our three-part We were segment. forced into that position. Forced. Yeah. At fucking gunpoint. Like No, literally thinking back on that period it's it's so rough i'm so happy i still the like i think today or yesterday 
woke up and had like a two part comment under one oh, of my TikToks. God. I didn't even yeah. Read it. I just me blocked. neither. People people like, tag like, me in things, and some people will be like, "Remember how that one person said that?" Blah blah blah. blah. And I'll be like, "Girl, you don't you don't have the range. You can't even begin." <laughs> it's like it's it's over. Like if you are going back to comment and try and like. But no. the funny thing is that I've been banned off of my TikTok. This is the third time I've been suspended mm-hmm. on my TikTok account. They'll be like, you violated too many community guidelines, not telling me which ones I violated, and then, like, suspending me for a week so I can't post on that account. Oh, speaking of which, you should follow us on our new TikTok account, at the Lavender Pod on TikTok. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we'll be posting really fun, awesome, amazing stuff. And that's all. So, oh, we also made an Instagram. Our TikTok and our Instagram is at the Lavender Menace Pod. Our Twitter and our letterbox is at the Lavender Pod. Yes, so we have made a letterbox, a a Instagram, a TikTok, and of course our our pre-existing uh, Twitter account, which we love to mm-hmm. be insane on all the time. We love our Twitter, at the Lavender Pod, exactly. So anyway, those are our plugs. Oh, and also thank you so much for our Patreon subscribers. Um, we're like up in the tens at this point. Wow, amazing. That's incredible for us. Uh, we're moving up in the yeah. world. So thanks so much to our Patreon subscribers. We really Winner, appreciate uh, you. Hassan era. Yeah, our, our millionaire <laughs> we've era. Reached, <laughs> we've reached, reached over 10 Patreons. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, shout out to Maureen, I think, is our bestie tier. Trin, thank you. We messaged you on, thank I messaged you. you on Patreon the other day. I don't think you've gotten back to me, but thank you. And also Umar, my bestie, Umar. Love you. Thanks for always being biphobic with me. Love, love you. <laughs> my biphobic bisexual bestie. Oh my god, alliteration. In the threes, <laughs> as we love. Anyway, do you want to read off uh, the hot take that you got, that you got in your DMs? I love you and Sunny's podcast. I found you guys on TikTok after the backlash from Sunny's vid on bisexuals. How fitting. What a great t- transition from <laughs> what we were just talking about. I'd love to talk to you about the non-straight slash queer experience. I'm lesbian and have identified as lesbian since probably 18 slash 19. I'm 23 now. I went through phases of homoromantic bisexuality and heteroromantic homosexuality and basically all the fun sexualities that aren't actually real before I realized I was lesbian. I'd love to talk with you or maybe you and Sunny can make a podcast about fake bisexuals. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts because I believe people are born gay. That being said, I believe real gay people know they're gay from a young age. And that being said, I believe that bisexuals, in quotations, that find out they like girls in their 20s are actually straight Sexuality is innate, and I believe if you only found out you liked girls in your 20s, you were probably socially slash environmentally conditioned to like girls. For example, you had bad experiences with men and are therefore now considering women as an option. I've had my character dragged through the mud for calling out 20 plus year old fake bisexuals as straight, but really, why don't lesbians ever find out they like girls in their 20s? Meaning, lesbians have to overcome compet to know that they only like non-men. But we all know we like girls from a young age. I knew I liked girls since I was seven years old at least. So, what do these bisexuals have to overcome that's making them not consider women as an option until their 20s, you know? 
like women have existed for many centuries and also all the 20 plus years of your life yet you never had romantic slash sexual thoughts about them until your 20s that sounds fake and i believe it is Overall, if you could talk about this topic and the harm fake bisexuals do to the queer slash lesbian community, that would be great. Interesting. <clears throat> this take is like much more controversial than anything we've ever said. <laughs> yeah. Like, let's just start out with that. I also, I want to clarify that we're not making up a person who sent this so that <laughs> the haters who inevitably will want to... Yeah, I think that this is more of like in intra-community sort of conversation in terms of like just lesbians because i think like with other sapphics who aren't lesbians like this sort of rhetoric is probably like i don't know really ostracizing but i get where this person is coming from but at the same time i feel like it sort of erases the reality that like you know we live in a really heterosexist patriarchal society where a lot of people don't even feel safe to think about anything outside of the cis-hetero like norm even within their fantasies even within their imagination until they're like fully grown adults like like as a kid because of the ways that i was consuming media and also what was expected of me like i performed girlhood and heterosexuality in ways that like i don't even know what that meant because i was like five you know but it was like once i started developing a sexuality like once i hit puberty was when i was like oh wait like I think I like girls. That was when it really hit for me, when I was like 12, 13-ish. It, I didn't really think about it before that, but before then the default was like, oh, I like men. So I totally understand like people who, instead of coming to that realization at 12 or 13, like comes came to that realization like 20 or 25 or whatever because like it was re- really particular to like the place that I was in life and like where, like I was just beginning to get out of the Um, limitations of like a Christian conservative immigrant community that I was really inundated with up until a certain point where like I was no longer just surrounded by just those people that I was like wait no like maybe abortion isn't wrong you know like it was it came along with those things and I imagine that for a lot of people who like I don't know I've read so many like memoirs and short stories and books uh, about people who like might not even have even realized that they were gay up until like that they even had any sort of quote-unquote same-sex like attraction up until like they were like adult adults because of just how repression works like repression and like tricking yourself and like your own understanding of yourself and your own perception of yourself is like it's so it it it's so powerful like you can really trick yourself into thinking anything like and to th- believing anything about yourself you know denial is one hell of a drug i agree i think For me, just because of the environment that I grew up in and because I went to a school where girls being close with each other as friends wasn't seen as weird or people didn't immediately see that as me being gay in any kind of way, I was able to have close friends without them being crushes. And then when it came into like the media that I consumed or like liking Shigo on Kim Possible and stuff like that, or even (laughs) Mm -hmm. my first like crush that I had in puberty which was Lady Mary on Downton Abbey I think I mentioned it before but that was my first like oh shit I might be a little bit gay Mm -hmm. crush Mm -hmm. I still didn't even think of it that way Mm -hmm. so like looking back I can be like oh that probably was what that was Mm -hmm. but if you ask if you went back in time and asked sixth grade me Mm -hmm. if like what I was feeling or, like, Mm -hmm. what I was doing was anyway gay, it would have been, Mm -hmm. like, no, like, I just Mm -hmm. like this character. 
you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I don't really know if I'd be able to answer that in some aspect, but then also, like, compulsory heterosexuality includes breaking down whatever wall you have in your brain that tells you not to think about the possibility of loving or liking women, regardless of not of how long they have existed or how long mm-hmm. they've existed in your Do life. Yeah. Um, thinking of, of any option outside of being in a monogamous relationship with a man is something that has to be, like, actively done mm-hmm. or, like... Mm-hmm. thought about in some way or fought against mm-hmm. in some way because like that's just how heterosexism and patriarchy works if you follow like mm-hmm. the flow of what people tell you to do or what people expect you to do it doesn't really matter what your sexuality mm-hmm. is like if you are seen as a woman then you're going to be told that you should have boyfriends and then if you get in a relationship mm-hmm. with your boyfriend then you're going to be told that you're supposed to be getting married and then if you get married, then mm-hmm. you're going to be told that you're expected to have kids. And then you're going to have kids. And then, mm-hmm. like, that's just how it goes, mm-hmm. whether or not. Yeah. And even, like, straight women end up being, like, you know, saying how much regret they have in terms of the things that they did with their lives based off of what was expected of them. You know, like, that's sort of mm-hmm. a common theme of all of humanity is, like, why did I do that? Oh, and I didn't even know that that's what I wanted. Like, and this is the other thing, like... Mamma Mia. <laughs> Shut up! The plot. I hate you, Donna Sheridan. Oh, my God. Uh, but what I was going to say was that, like, I know so many people in my personal life whom, like, me and all of our mutual friends were like, you are queer. Like, you are definitely queer. I don't give a fuck you're fruity. But we never said anything about it because they were so in denial for all of their adolescence. It was only until their adulthood that they were ever able to really question this even in their head and like as even as a kid like this is different because I wasn't an adult but like as a child I kept on thinking no but I have to be straight because I like this fictional male character and I like this (laughs) fictional male male character and I had a crush crush like hyper fixation on this one kid in my class who never spoke to me like you know what I mean like I would always justify the logic that I had like I would justify everything that I did based off of a conclusion that I had already come to you know like and that's the thing that's what my friends who were in denial for so long sounded like to me they were justifying the means to an end of a conclusion that they ultimately all were already set in they were already thinking I am cishet I am cishet and so if you even brought up the question, well, like, I don't think you are, like, it, it, it wouldn't have done anything. It wouldn't have affected them in any meaningful way, which is like, that's the sort of the balance between the socialization and like the people around you and the systems and structures around you. And then who you are as an individual is that like all these things are in relationship with each other, but like some things weigh out heavier than others. And I don't think that like one thing weighing out a bit more than another is necessarily a defining feature of your sexuality. Just because you've been put in an environment of your, of like none of your own choosing in which like you weren't even able to think about your sexuality. Like a lot of the time, it's only in the aftermath of a relationship that you can look back at it and think, oh, that wasn't even meaningful, really. Like that wasn't love or like that was abusive. Like a lot of people can only really think of these things in the aftermath of a relationship. So I feel like that's true with sexuality as well. And like, I feel like this is the other thing. In terms of telling people, in in terms of telling my friends, like, 
hey, like, I don't think you're straight. I never said that in our conversations. I never asked that because mm-hmm. it would n- it would not, like, that's not a boundary that is mine to cross. Like, that is a conclusion for them to come to. Like, I mean, in more casual conversation and in with people who I knew were not in active denial of their own identities, I would kind of ask the question, like, how do you know you're straight? And they would kind of be like, and I've had... so many conversations with people where I would kind of just ask the question innocuously like well how do you know you're straight and they were like huh that's a good question I don't really know actually or they would respond like I don't know if I am like and that's the thing like we were all like 15 16 17 at this point so if no one before that point had ever even asked them that question like they would never have come out you know within the year after that I asked them this you know like and obviously it's not just me Mm -hmm. instigating this it's like all these different things and all these different conversations and thoughts that you have but like that's the thing like you don't even know what exists until you're like exposed to what exists I think there are the cases of gay people who like at age like four were like oh I'm gay or trans people who like at age three were like there's I am not a boy or I'm not a girl you know like that's true Mm -hmm. as well that is a totally real experience yeah. that so many people have, but it's like, it, right, but it's it's centered yeah. in conversations so often that like erases the reality of compet in a lot of situations, I feel. I don't think either of us are saying that it's impossible to know that you are gay or trans at a very young age. Like, obviously, that is something that is experienced, but I don't think that that being true inherently erases the people who don't find out that they're queer until like later in life you know or it doesn't like invalidate that experience and Mm -hmm. particularly with like coming for bisexuals in this case I think one thing that like is separate from the lesbian and the bisexual experience obviously is that like bisexuals do experience attraction to men so if their whole life they're told that it's only bad if you like don't like men Mm -hmm. but they do Mm -hmm. then whatever it's possible that even within themselves they don't see the romantic or sexual feelings that they have towards women or non-men as, like, unrelatable. And that, like, it's, like, I thought in my hashtag bisexual era that because I thought that I liked men, that all straight people also felt the way that I felt about girls. Mm-hmm. Because I was like, well, if you say that you like men and or boys, because I was a kid, if you say that you like boys and I like boys, then... And that's supposedly normal, then my other feelings that I have about other people are also normal. So then it might take until adulthood and meeting new people or just having different experiences or just learning more about yourself in general, or like Sunny said, looking back on the aftermath of a relationship to realize that maybe even if you do experience attraction to men, that doesn't mean that everyone who's experiences attraction to men also has like sapphic feelings. And then that opens up a whole new conversation about your own sexuality mm-hmm. that can happen much, much later in life yeah. as well. So I like I have I also have bisexual friends and like exes, etc., who didn't realize that they were gay up until mm-hmm. their early 20s. And it wasn't even that they weren't in environments that were, like, queer-friendly. Like, they were. But it was just, like, they never even thought to ask the question. Or it was only until they were like, wait, I need to think about this a little bit more. That they started really questioning their sexuality and realizing that they're queer. Like, or or one person comes into your life and is like, oh, like, mm, are you sure you're not straight? Like, there are, like, there's so many different situations that can occur that can, like, sort of launch queerness in a way that, like, 
might not seem innate to someone, you know, like might not seem innate to other people because of the like what this the the listener who like submitted the take was saying like, oh, like you've existed for like a couple decades and you haven't even thought about this before it's like yeah like some people really have it like it's like mm-hmm. it's pretty easy to go your whole life and not even think about it you know like you know that's it's just that's just the world we live in like you can even live in a very queer friendly space and just like never think about it because no one's putting you at gunpoint being like are you sure you're straight like no like it's yeah. it's really situational and it really like maybe all the gay people that you're around are one type of gay person or like and that like you don't really identify with that whatsoever you know like i don't know i feel like i Me, feel like with gsa <laughs> lesbians i was like i'm not oh like bitches i'm not like <laughs> you bitches okay some yeah. of you are just weird okay Have you that? but <laughs> another thing i think though is um so much of i think like sexuality or what even that is especially because this is this person is talking about like I think people who are in their 20s or like like young adults like adults but like Mm -hmm. not 40s or like in Mm -hmm. their 50s coming out like Mm -hmm. they're talking about specifically people in their 20s and I think like part of this regardless of what might be innate or what you're already born as like so much of what you do in high school and in puberty is, like, performative and, like, the performance mm-hmm. of romance, mm-hmm. the performance of sexuality, yeah. the performance of being in a relationship. Mm-hmm. That I don't think it's really fair to hold that against anyone, even straight people later in life, because I can only imagine how different, even as a straight person, your relationships yeah. are in your, like, in your 30s yeah. and 40s and 50s right, versus... Right the heterosexuality that you're performing when you're like 15 and 16 17 years old just look at taylor swift with her relationship with fucking what's his face versus with joelle winnell you know like (laughs) (laughs) jake gyllenhaal yeah that motherfucker Mm -hmm. like if you look at the different portrayals of her relationship and her love of these two different people over the course of like you know 15 years like the the difference Mm -hmm. that just a decade makes with like how a person is and how a person treats a relationship it's pretty significant and it's worth noting and it's not always something that like needs to be dismissed necessarily so that being said on another point because it's just like i want to make sure that i kind of address the multiple points in here that we do my first point is i don't think you can really be socially or environmentally conditioned to like girls if you're not gay like i just don't think that's something that can happen yeah it's the other way around always always like society is too heteronormative and to be like oh the solution to your problems is to like be queer like that's just not gonna be something that's like forced upon someone and then too like the idea that oh if you've had bad experiences with men then you should consider women as an option the thing is is that okay as long as they're open about it or mm-hmm. they don't even have to be like as long as they are consensually in a healthy relationship mm-hmm. then that's what matters and if it doesn't mm-hmm. work out because it turns out that they're not actually sapphic or they're not actually queer mm-hmm. people break up for a million million different reasons mm-hmm. all of the time mm-hmm. and if they're in a relationship and they find out oh i thought that maybe this is just a person who makes me happy and this mm-hmm. is someone that i want to do these things with mm-hmm. and then it turns out oh I don't think this person is whatever I need from this relationship to be, then it doesn't really matter at the end of the day how they identify because that's how even a lot of people who are gay break up. 
that relationship is mm-hmm. no longer compatible. Mm-hmm. That thing that you are building is no longer something that you think that you want to continue to build. Mm-hmm. Whether that be because they find out that they're not actually gay or for whatever other reason. Mm-hmm. Like, it's about, like, can you have... Or is the relationship healthy? Is it beneficial? Is it something that you mm-hmm. both want? If mm-hmm. for whatever reason that's not the case, then... Maybe mm-hmm. that's a sign to end the relationship. Just mm-hmm. because someone has poor options with men, okay, they date a woman or a woman or a non-man, it doesn't work out. I hope that means that they don't go back to men who then they have terrible experiences with. It means mm-hmm. that they are able to find a person who they can have a healthy, loving relationship with. So. Yeah, that's that, that should be your hope for anyone. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, let's move on to our I next I hope that answers your take. question, and I hope that we that doesn't get edited for us to be like, we to be hashtag canceled bisexuals <laughs> and, uh at book Quarter and renaissance marie is so biphobic what's so fucking funny though is that like okay what is even ha- being a quote-unquote fake bisexual how is anyone gonna call you out for being for faking being bisexual when you're when the whole label and identity of being bisexual is that like there's no way to do it wrong like <laughs> You're not, know, you're not a fake like, bisexual if you only date people of the same gender or if you only date people of the opposite gender or whatever. Like, that, you're just bisexual and that's your dating history. You know, like, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> I feel like I know, that's what like, is quote unquote biphobia or whatever is like the, the screw. I mean, that's just like existing in society as a queer person or as like a non cishet person is like the scrutiny over your dating history, which is like so yeah. I feel like undeserved because it's like. As you're you're acting as if the people that you had relationships in the past are, are are what and who defines you and it's like that's not really the case I feel like for most people so anyway yeah I don't really get it like the whole fake if it was like talking I mean I guess about like girls who only make out with other girls for mm-hmm. like guys attention or at parties mm-hmm. or something like that mm-hmm. and you call that like faking bisexuality or whatever as like a different conversation that itself isn't even necessarily bisexuality i feel like like i feel like no but it's not but i mean if that was what they were right calling it but that's not even the topic of conversation so the way that they're talking about this performance of Mm -hmm. sapphism Mm -hmm. or bisexuality i don't yeah fully understand yeah but like all sexuality is a performance gender is a performance Mm -hmm. thus sexuality is a performance like it's all just acts you know but Anyway, uh, (laughs) the next take we have is from Ike, and he says, I am a 17-year-old gay boy, but I've sort of fallen in love with the gayler community. I love it here. I hope my lesbians and bisexuals and sapphic and queer ladies don't mind if I stick around. Uh, We love for you to stick around. I had a question about what y'all think about dot, dot, dot reputation because while there are some amazing all caps songs on there i feel like it's a really horrible album parentheses the trap radio feel of it all was such a late take on a very short-lived trend in music and it came off as cringeworthy to me and parentheses the production is so gaudy and off-putting there's so much cringe in how self-obsessed it is yet so many swifties uphold it as a masterpiece or her best album especially gay men i know gayler stands love reputation for some of its sapphic themes but i was wondering what y'all thought i love new year's day getaway car and delicate as much as the next guy but can but can't we admit it's really probably her worst work at a severe misstep also do you guys think taylor swift is a quote-unquote good person her music is obviously wonderful but do swifties have to separate the art from the artist especially all caps from a lefty slash communist swifty perspective should we eye all her business moves with a suspicion we would towards other capitalists and y'all might have already 
covered this, but why won't Taylor Swift come out? I feel like it would make headlines and be an incredible cultural moment. And she doesn't seem to have any reservations against supporting lesbian and gay artists. Is it a business move? Is it better for her to avoid coming out in terms of maintaining her carefully crafted narrative over past albums? Oh, and have you seen that Phoebe Bridgers is literally a gayler? She's liked tweets in the past and recently (laughs) reposted a gayler meme and sent gayler Twitter on fire. Doesn't surprise me, but I love to see gaylers get so close to Taylor. It's like we have a spy on the inside. And what do you think about that one Olivia Rodrigo Instagram comment? I emoji. Y'all think she's a gayler? I have so many thoughts. Parentheses, I have no friends. Parentheses. <laughs> but do y'all think Taylor Swift is actively on social media seeing our theories? She's always been acutely aware of how the media perceives her. However, it's just weird to think that she must be aware of gayler stuff then. Should this influence how we read her calculations and moves? Do we think she's the one who uploads to her TikTok in response to all the comments? I love y'all. Thank y'all for the podcast. I can't wait to subscribe to Patreon once I'm in a better place financially. Thank you so much, Ike. I appreciate mm-hmm. this email so much. I It was such a delight to read. <laughs> it was. It was very fun. I loved it. So let's break we'll this down by friends. friends. I- <laughs> <laughs> we'll be your friends. It's true. Uh, first of all, I think... So we have an episode on reputation, specifically like the queer themes of it. I think it's episode four or three of our first season. So it's like way back. But mm-hmm. um, we literally... We read the slideshow that is called Reputation is About Carly Class. <laughs> And we go through the whole thing. So, and we don't really necessarily talk about our thoughts on reputation, but like me and Renaissance both love this album. Like, like we disagree with the take that it's a horrible album. Like we love this love. album. I, the number of times I streamed this album this past <laughs> summer, summer 2021. Yeah, literally. 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 Like yeah. this album uh. is amazing and I can't wait for its re-release because i think i think oh, like it, there's gonna be an international bank holiday like every business <laughs> and government will be closed on the day that this album drops reputation taylor's version oh, i'm so fucking excited for the vault tracks i think the production on this was actually really intelligent i think that the self-referential elements of it was also really really intelligent like i think that the fact that it's all about her reputation and so it's all about Mm -hmm. herself and it's all about the ways that others perceive herself like even in the look what you made me do music video where she has all she's like dressed up as all of the different characters of herself interacting with herself like i thought was so funny and so smart she is such a sagittarius like she knows she knows how to integrate that humor and optimism and quirkiness into every element of like all of her smart decisions i think i love i love reputation i i first of all i don't think trap radio is a short-lived trend in music um i think Mm -hmm. it's a it was short-lived in terms of like white artist musicians but Mm -hmm. like Trap is a whole genre of music that mm-hmm. was created by and for black musicians and mm-hmm. artists. Um, and it's a whole, like, genre in that. To call it trap is, like... But if you actually listen to real trap music, no one is going to call <laughs> reputation trap. But, like, I kind of get, like, for Taylor Swift, it's trap. Like, the production so, like, level watching- is giving very Swedish man behind it. <laughs> like- yeah, exactly. Like... It's definitely not, like, the... It's not stay, 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 <laughs> you know? Like, it's not Spotify ad ukulele music. Right. I guess you could say it's a different sound of pop, but it's not not pop. I definitely wouldn't 
so that it's that a more aspect. electronic leaning sense of pop i feel a little bit yeah. more bass heavy thinking about mm-hmm. the real talk tv on youtube it's like four or five people i think they have like their own music situation anyway these like five dudes who just like react to a bunch of everything from like sporting events to like like obviously taylor swift and so mm-hmm. i was like binge watching some of their videos and their video on look what you made me do was so like like was so funny to me because the way that like they interpreted and reacted as people who like they're like Swifties, but like they don't like they don't know the lore necessarily. So they're only like coming to conclusions based off of the music video and like the lyrics itself. And the the way that they unpacked it was like so smart and like it was really, really intelligent. I think in the way that like these guys like like broke down what she's really saying. And I feel like mm-hmm. the fact that okay, lots of people don't like the fact that "Look What You Made Me Do" is a single off the album. Which, like, yeah, I understand. Because I don't it, think... shouldn't, it shouldn't have been. We talked <laughs> about I... this, like, recently. That her, her singles are terrible. Her single uh, choices are yeah. awful. I understand why she made the decision to release this as a single, though. Because she is, like, this song is what she's trying to say in the album. All the other songs mm-hmm. in this album are, like, love songs, basically. But this song is her directly speaking to the audience and speaking to the Kimye, like, situation. Um, which, like, at this time, very timely. And I think, like, even now, you know, years removed from it, still, like, a pop cultural moment that, like, <laughs> is, like, the drama of that will never be forgotten, you know? Like, she will never live that down. The way that we will never they live down our biphobia cancellation. And a Swifty <laughs> at that time. Well, it, it was, was funny. Like- in the Real Talk TV video, they were talking about, like, what, like, the history between Kanye and Taylor, like, just in her, per- mm-hmm. like, all the drama, going back to, you know, her, like, fearless days. Um, and they were talking yeah. about it. And they were talking about, like, they were like, like, I love Kanye, but, like, I love Taylor. And, like, he really, like, he, he was wrong for that, you know? And they were talking about, the- and it's like, that's the thing, like, normal people can come to this conclusion. But, like, misogynists and, like... You know, you know what I mean? Like, are not going to come to that conclusion. Especially when, with the portrayal of, like, of Taylor as, like, this petty bitch who's, like, lying and, like, a snake. Which is what she really capitalizes off of um, in this in this album. In Reputation, she's really talking about her reputation as someone who, like, dates too many people. As, especially following up 1989, where she's kind of going into, you know, 1989 in Blank Space and in Shake It Off. She's, like, the, you know... I stay out too late, you know, like, I I got nothing in my brain, like, that's what people say, that's what people say, versus, like, you know, all of Blank Space, like, this is, like, satire of the way that people portray her, but Reputation is her kind of being a little bit more genuine, I feel like, yes, in terms of how she's dealing with the way that others perceive her, which is why it's called Reputation, like, it is about her reputation and she's leaning into this sort of thing. It's like, look what you made me do. Like, look what, look at the, look at how I am portraying myself now that you have painted me as like an evil bitch, woman, snake, whatever. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to have all of, and she talks about this in, um, in a lot of her interviews and stuff, talking about her eras, especially like 2019 further, where she's like, yeah, like during my reputation era, I was like, on that tour and stuff, I was very intentional about, you know, I was having snakes everywhere, and, like, you know, and, like, that's the thing, like, every element of her music videos, every element of her live shows, all of her lyrics are so intentional, like, she, she is, like, 
you know, album cover, album names, uh, orders, like she's, she's thinking, she's really a thinker, you know, and I feel like the video, the, the reaction to look what you made me do from, um, the YouTube channel, Real Talk TV, like really got into it. But anyway, I, I completely agree. Obviously, I think Taylor Swift is a genius. I don't think that the the only thing that I find cringy about reputation is Ed Sheeran's verse but that is because I find all Ed Sheeran verses cringy so I can only listen to I think his Ed um, Sheeran verse the Ed Sheeran verse would have been fine if it was someone who wasn't Ed Sheeran doing it no exactly I love Endgame as a song I think it's great same but I don't like the style of of his voice over the track like Taylor (laughs) is able to adapt her voice to that song and then Ed Sheeran (laughs) Yeah, like I don't, I don't like his it's fucking not accent. Even, oh my god! Because him and I just um, got used to it because I love the song, so like I just get used to it. But whatever. And everything has changed. Is yeah, that the song everything has changed. Yeah, yeah everything yeah. has changed. Like it makes it, more it, sense. Like it it's makes more cohesive. More sense. Yeah, exactly. And there's like other collabs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That he's but done. on this song specifically, it's sh- yeah, yeah. And and he has other of his own, like, rap, like, sing-song rap mm-hmm. songs of his own that I like because it makes sense. Like, his voice and that track make sense. When I hear his voice on this, it is a bit of a jump scare. Every single time. Like, I know it's coming, and it's a jump scare. So, oh, my God. Dude, I hope I, in I, Reputation, I like Taylor's version, she brings Kendrick Lamar on the vault tracks because... <gasps> Because he please, has talked please, about... Please, 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 What's so please, funny please. is that so many hip-hop artists, like... They love Taylor Swift's 1989 and Reputation (laughs) work. Like, Mm -hmm. in Real Talk TV, I think they're all hip-hop artists. Because, like, they'll... They will start, like, rapping over... (laughs) Like, over random, like, lyrics that they like. Anyway, so in their... Like, I've been binging their content. And it's so funny seeing the song that they really enjoy. And I think, like... and, And Kendrick Lamar, who also major hip-hop artist, like... The similarity in terms of their taste is that they both love Shake It Off. Like, as a song, love Shake It Off, which I think is so funny because, like, because, like, the sort of bridge between 1989 and Reputation is, like, a song like Shake It Off, but if you added more of, like, a heavy bass and, like, electronic background to it, you know, which is what Mm -hmm. a lot of her songs sound like in Reputation, and I just think it's so fun, and so I can't wait to see her collab with more hip-hop artists, especially for this album, because she's done, she's done the indie girls, she's done the, she's done the fucking, uh, she's done the, the, the country boys. Gasoline-sounding-ass men. Voice like fucking black coffee. Yeah, yeah. So she, I need her to move into, I need her to tap into the the people who want to work with her because i remember seeing an interview with kendrick lamar where he's like oh my god i love shake it off i would love to work with taylor swift and this was back in like fucking 2017 one of my favorite like hashtag millennial taylor swift moments is the one where she's recording herself rapping uh kendrick lamar verse in her car Mm -hmm. and she's like (laughs) 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 i forget which one but i can see it in my head yes i can also visualize it we i think we all we all we all visualize this video it's the most, like, white, millennial white woman that she looks, but she's enjoying herself so much. <laughs> like, you can tell that she really enjoys the song, but it just doesn't look right. Like, her and that song just, it's, like, two polar opposites aesthetically, and it's very funny. But to get back to the email, can we admit that this is probably her worst work? No. And can we admit that it's a severe misstep? Also, no. 
reputation is so far from her worst work. Yeah. That, like, no. <laughs> and, <laughs> like, Ike, I love you, buddy. You know? <laughs> I'm very happy to be friends, and feel free to email us. However, I, I, think, I think you need to listen to it a couple more times to really, to really get it. Let it sink in. It's so good. And also, you love New Year's Day. Yeah, sure. Getaway car. Delicate. There's also dress. I was going to say, you know? where is dress? Dress? Dress. Dress is currently Dancing the song with their hands that my... tied? Dancing oh. with their hands tied? Oh. And also, I don't understand how you can listen to that and be like, ah, yes, this is trap music. I, I also <laughs> just want to recommend to you, go look up actual trap music. And then listen to Reputation, and you're going to be like, yeah, this isn't, this is not, this is not the same thing. Because mm. it's not. Just because the album cover is, like, black and white, and mm. she's, like, old English font, does mm. not mean that it is a trap <laughs> album. Um, God. But, and I also think, like, of course, you know, we all shit on Taylor Swift singles, because... Why does she pick yeah. the song that sounds the yeah. least like her album to be the teaser and intro to her new eras? I but like Sunny said, I do understand why she picked "Look What You Made Me Do." And in the Kimye tornado, hurricane, Sharknado that was that time, like it was so huge. Like you couldn't not talk about that single. Like ever, everyone was talking about. Like uh, people in the streets. Big reputation. uh, Big reputation. Like, it was, like... And I always remember, like, mine at the time. I was like, girl, you're literally a skinny white girl from Pennsylvania. What (laughs) bad reputation? Like, what baddie do you think you're serving? But also, No, at the time, I was like, oh, whatever. I didn't really think much about it. It was, like, I I didn't get into my Swifty phase until I started listening to Lover. And I was like, this fucking slaps. I was also going through a breakup at that time when I was listening to Lover, and I was like, one day, I will forget that he existed. One day. Oh <laughs> anyway, no, and that was when I was like, let me go appreciate Reputation, because, oh my god, wait, did I tell you the story? I, If you are a long-time listener of the podcast, you will under, you will remember this, but um, my friend in high school got, like, like tickets for, what's it <gasps> called? Like, what, the, the closest... Yes section to the reputation tour um so she went and she invited me to go but i only had like 400 dollars in my bank account and the tickets would have cost 200 dollars. so i was like mm, and it was a tuesday night so i was like mm. and and she was touring in st louis uh at, which is her ex her exes hometown carly and she also has family in st louis because um and it, some of the swifts live in st louis anyway basically my friend went to the reputation tour and i didn't go because i didn't know any of the reputation songs for real like i i knew 1989 front and back i love that but and like obviously i knew her hits from before that era but like i didn't really know her discography like that so i was like it wouldn't have been worth it and to this day i still think it would not have been worth it if i went because i would not have known any of the songs and i would have been in the pit with everyone who knew every single lyric of everything she's ever written so like it just would but anyway my friend who went ended up meeting her like after the show because her mom was in the pit picking out people to go meet her as she does in every single show so and that was like a night that i was like oh i didn't go and she ended up meeting taylor but at that point i still you know it was like 2017 when she released this i I was or it might have been a 2018 tour anyway i was still like iffy about how i felt about her because i didn't have a strong feeling either way and i didn't start to have a strong feeling either way until i delved into the gayler into the gayler 
material. You know yeah, what I mean? So, that's what got me back. Because obviously it was a fan in elementary school. Like, I remember mm-hmm. when my friends had the Wonderlust perfume. And I, like, would have literally <laughs> given my left arm to have the Wonderlust perfume. Yeah. Like, I wanted it so, 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 so bad. And I remember at recess, my friend would teach me the lyrics to Taylor Swift songs. I'm like, no, I need to know same, every same, single same. word. I remember this. So, obviously, I was a Swifty in elementary school, and I love Who wasn't a Swifty in elementary school? Like, literally, who wasn't? Exactly, you had to be. And then 1989 was, like, my album, and yeah, then same. Reputation comes after 1989, mm-hmm. and that's when, like, Kimmy stuff was, like, was happening, yeah. I was, like, older, I, yeah. and then... Look and like I didn't really know what side out. was correct. I didn't know because it was only a couple years later that, like, we found out that, like, oh, my God, like, mm-hmm. like Kim, like, edited the phone call and, like, Taylor actually was, like, not lying the whole time. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, ugh. because between Look What You Made Me Do and Ready For It and Endgame and, like, when the titles of the songs came out, I was like, girl, who are you fighting? What is the Look What You Made Me Do? <laughs> like, what... What are you going to do? <laughs> but, <laughs> so, like, it's smart looking back. And I know that mm-hmm. Swifties who stood, who were like, that's my man. I'm going to stay beside him. Like, they were uh-huh. truly fighting for their lives during yeah. this era. And I'm like, yeah. wow, you guys really happened to write this entire time. And, like, that's yeah, rough for you, damn. you know? Right. <laughs> but it's like, I think now... Ike, as you are writing this email to us and we are responding in 2021, I don't think that it's fair to say that this is her worst work because so many of her songs are genius. Like, Don't Blame Me, oh my gosh, Don't Blame Me don't is blame so me. good. Delicate. So it goes. Go- gorgeous? Why is All gorgeous of the songs on, on this album Ike? is so fucking good, like, dude. It's so it's good. so good. And like, I just think that the progression of 1989 reputation into lover is one perfect. of I think that's my favorite so three yeah. set. Yeah. Like yeah. I just love it's that. Flawless. I just think it's amazing. It's amazing. So in terms of that, I think that will unless you have more to say, I think we can get into yeah. the second part of is taylor a good person a good person we kind of talk about this in our in our uh red episode actually don't we where we're like she would be making music regardless of what situation she yeah was in. like she would be making music regardless of the type of world that we lived in and she would be making music regardless of the amount of success that she had and like i tweeted about this on the podcast account the other day and so mm-hmm. one of the listeners one of our listeners i think responded was like the alternate universe where she's like just another like <laughs> like blonde I with like that. botanical tattoos and like an on and on again off again boyfriend <laughs> a truck her dad bought her and a guitar <laughs> Of no. hundreds of women in her DMs. <laughs> I was like, literally, like, literally. <laughs> I think uh. it's so easy to imagine Taylor Swift being the person Taylor Swift without mm-hmm. all of this. Like, obviously, mm-hmm. so much of her career is also the fact that, like, she's white and mm-hmm. pretty mm-hmm. and, you know, blonde mm-hmm. and was marketing herself towards a country audience who freaking mm-hmm. eat that shit up you yeah. know so like mm-hmm. she had other systems that already exist because of just simply living in the world that we already exist right. in such as like right. white supremacy and yeah. things like that yeah. and you know benefiting from the systemic oppression of yeah. fat phobia because her being naturally thin and and things like that which mm-hmm. then 
we learned from and also just like having parents who are like really like parents who are really willing to support her career and didn't need her career to survive like they like they were like because he was her her dad was like a stockbroker so like they were they were like basically millionaires before she ever made music but when she was a kid she was like let me make music and they're like okay we'll support you in everything that you do like that's the thing it's this key component of like being already successful and stable within a capitalist system having the sort of innovation and like talent and skill and like hard work and ability to go through shit that requires success that like leads to success under capitalism as well as the like relationships and support that you need like you know a a really solid team family members who really care and support you like she's always had all of those things always like so that's allowed her to be so successful but that's also true for like people like beyonce you know that's true for any successful musical artist Mm -hmm. besides you know the standouts like dolly parton and people who are like known for having a rags riches background or when you see the people like britney spears where she's like literally being exploited for all of her life and in all of her childhood for the purpose of like making money so like there there's a different there's a range of celebrities who exist to the capacity that they do and like the reasons why but the but i think like the amount of stability that we see with taylor's like fame and like the fact that she is a quote-unquote good person just comes from the fact that she had a lot of stability in in something that would otherwise be a really tumultuous career and path yeah if the question is do i think she's a good person and that do i think secretly she is like evil and spits (laughs) at her assistants and managers and has these like tantrums or or something like Mm -hmm. that or is like evil to work with Uh to my current level of swifty knowledge and what i think is like publicly generally known about her that's not really something that we hear about her or her behavior yeah i mean i feel like people there's like interviewers and people who are like happy to see her on the red carpet and she's also happy to like she like her interviews come off as someone who's like happy and like I, i feel like so many people can make so much money off of lying about her being terrible in terms of like mm-hmm. her personality mm-hmm. and don'ts mm-hmm. and let alone any true stories that like like if she really was evil do you mm-hmm. think anyone would keep that on lock mm-hmm. <laughs> do you not yeah. think that they'd be selling those yeah. stories like yeah her publicity team possible. has nothing on the people on the people on the, exactly. the masses you know what i mean like her publicity team can't do shit about the gayler conspiracies you think the issues mm-hmm. regu- routinely being mean to people we would not be hearing about this like i think the thing is is that we routinely hear that she pays her workers well she's very nice mm-hmm. to everyone on her team she's very mm-hmm. loyal to everyone she works with and like it shows <laughs> like everyone who she works with loves her and the people that fuck her over she is very clear that they fucked her over like and she doesn't fuck over she other tried people to buy back her right. music right and like do all this without fully exposing like gave scooter Braun and Big Record Machines, I believe, yeah, is the yeah. record company. Mm-hmm. Um, Scott Borchetta, I think, is his name. Yeah, yeah, like she gave them tried. the chance. <laughs> yeah, like if they, if she, when she said, "Oh, can I have ownership over my music, or even buy them back from the record company?" and they said, "Yeah, we'll give you the rights to this for this price." One, we would never have the re-recording. So, like, hashtag win for misogyny. <laughs> but like, then we we would have never known about all that we do know about these people right so like i i just do i think she's a good person 
I still don't know her. I still have yeah. never interacted with her. But I don't think that yeah. there's any basis to think that There's no contrary not. evidence, really. Like, not in any way that doesn't sweep her up within the systems that already yeah. exist. Like, yeah. do I like, think that if any you're gonna criticize white person her for being, who yeah, yeah, lives yeah. in colonial yeah. United States yeah. is good? Yeah. Like, if that's the question, no. And then you point right. back at me and you're like, so you hate Taylor Swift? I'm gonna be like... It's like, no. I have friends who are yeah. white. <laughs> I have... I enjoy mm-hmm. people who are... Like, that's the thing. It's like, we can understand that these identities are, like, bad. But the thing is, is that individual people are not necessarily always a reflection of all the worst elements of their identity. You know? Like, some people are actively working against being the worst part of their identity, you know? Like, and other people are not. Yeah. Like, and really, I think the question is, like, how, at least in terms of who you choose to keep in your life interpersonally and who you keep choose to keep in your life parasocially, like, you know, what media you choose to consume, like, it's really about, like, well, yeah, we know that if someone is rich and famous... Uh, there's no way to, like, do that in a really ethical manner in this society. There's no way for you to exist in that way with, with, without the behest of someone else's exploitation. But that's true for basically everyone who's, who, who wants yeah. to, who wants to have a career like she does, you know? Like, it is not her fault, you know, that she is in these positions and that she is able to do the things that she is able to do. And she's and not I don't, excessively cruel, yeah, and Neither. she doesn't, like, take it for granted either. Like, she is, it's so clear in everything that she says and does that she's so grateful to the people who let her exist the way that she does. Like, her fans. Like, she actually, like, cares about the people who make her possible. Like, she knows mm-hmm. that she would not be possible without the people who allow her to be possible. Like, you know, it's just, and she, and I don't think her, be, her being perceived as, like, this sort of greedy white feminist type of person really makes sense, especially when you look at, like, her actual actions and stuff. I actually, I watched this really good YouTube video from this woman who's a lawyer, and I think she was talking about the case that Miss Americana, Taylor Swift kind of goes into it, about the case, the time where she sued this radio producer guy for one dollar, and it was, like, one of the situations where he was basically suing her for, like, defamation or whatever, because he, like, sexually harassed her, and she was... And it was sort of, it's like one of those things that's like, she's not making any money off of this, you know? Mm -hmm. She's, she also is not really making, like, she was more willing, she'd be more willing to take, to buy out hundreds of millions of dollars of her own stuff, like her own recordings, her own masters, than what she's doing now. Like, she's doing this now because the people in charge, like, yeah, we're not, we're not letting you do shit. And she's being like, no, I will re-record this. And they're like, yeah, sure. And she actually is. Like, that's the thing. Like, she's doing these things because she knows the way that people, like, perceive, like, perceive her. She's like this, like, she has, she's a mirror ball. She has, she these mirrors, like, she's looking everywhere. Um, and yeah. I think, like, just her skill. And her, her ability to navigate these situations in the world that we live in is, like, commendable in itself, especially with the grace that she does it with and, like, the, the dignity and, like, the respect that she has for everyone that she works with. She never said, like, she never says anything negative about anyone who doesn't deserve it, you know? And she always is very intentional about making space and giving her platform to people that she thinks deserve a platform. She always shouts out other women artists. She always supports LGBTQ artists. She always gives opportunities to other artists in the industry. Like, she is a good person in the sense that, like, she does all the right things to do when you're in a position like that, you know? Like, she's, you know, like, but is she a good, quote, unquote, good person in terms of, like, also being a capitalist? Like, well, she's a capitalist in that, like, she, and that, like, everyone loves her music and thus she's making 
a lot of capital off of her own work, and which requires a whole management team that then creates more capital that fuels the like. It's one of those things that's like this is just how capitalism works, and I think hating on one woman for how capitalism works is just like that's just you hating women the same way that people who shit on like girl bosses all the time who are like men or who, people who like you know aren't affected by misogyny shitting on quote-unquote girl bosses it's like mm, are you shitting on girl bosses or do you just hate women like do you do you really think and that i am both no, I'm <laughs> <laughs> like i mean i get it but i definitely think that like if you are already going to hate any capitalists as individual people in the same way that like yeah i don't like Jeff Bezos. I think he seems like scummy and mm-hmm, gross mm-hmm. and weird. And and like also he like, has a lot of control over these things. Like like yeah, he has but, control over every element of of his production because he mm-hmm. is a CEO. Taylor Swift, she is an artist. She is being controlled but, by other forces in many ways. I mean, she has a lot of autonomy because of how powerful and how rich and how famous she is, but she's still an artist, you know? Even though I don't like Jeff Bezos, if you got rid of him but didn't fix capitalism, there's just Mm going to be another person who's just like Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Uh So Uh even hating him Mm -hmm. for being who he is Mm -hmm. isn't actually critiquing the system system. Mm -hmm. that allowed for his existence to be a thing. So, like, hating Taylor Swift because artists are able to have other resources or have support or benefit from imperialism, white supremacy, other things like that in terms of people are more going to be naturally inclined to support her or give her a chance or like her or for any other reason. Like, hating Taylor Swift for benefiting that doesn't actually critique the systems that allow someone like her to exist on this level Mm -hmm. because like we said before she would be a writer a singer a songwriter even if she wasn't successful to this degree Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. like if she was just living like a normal life and was still writing yeah like like obviously she would still have the help from you know having a dad who like makes a lot of money and like she would Mm -hmm. still be like a suburban girl from like but like i mean but like even celebrity culture is a yeah. a byproduct and a form of capitalism of capitalism so and it's also not of her own doing you know like she didn't create exactly. any of the systems that she was born into she just happens to be really successful about it the, the, but the difference with that and like capitalists is that capitalists they're not really successful at anything they're just born into and capitalizing off of the system you know what i mean like they're not really mm-hmm. nec- they're not doing anything like anything that really contributes to society they're just a placeholder but the thing is is that taylor swift is there's no one like her in terms of like the way that she goes about the world and the stuff that she creates and that's the thing about being an artist like as an artist like you make stuff that is uniquely yours and capitalism is what makes that shit a commodity and you know whether art is a commodity or not it has to do with the systems the, the overarching economic systems that we live under, which we as individuals have no control of, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that, like, oftentimes hating her because you think of her as, like, a, the front woman of, like, white feminism or whatever, I think is just you falling prey to the ways that media has, like, portrayed her and, and made her seem like that whiny white woman type caricature whom... The reality of who she is 
has never been. Like, she's never mm-hmm. been that, like, whiny bitch person that people think she is. People just think that she um, has that character, like, has that persona because of their own misunderstandings of <laughs> what's going on, you know? Or because of they're just misogynists, you know? I completely agree. Now, that being said, why won't Taylor Swift come out? <laughs> <laughs> I think she, she went out too many motherfuckers. Too many girls That's, that she's been around. I, I think we said this in our very first episode because our yeah. very first episode was the question is Taylor Swift queer baiting? I yeah. think is like yeah. the very exploiting like, lesbians. The, <laughs> yeah, it's exploiting yeah. lesbians. So something of the uh, of the sort. And I think we said cuz if not we have had this conversation as yeah. Brenda Sonson Sunny. Yeah. Prior prior before the Lavender Menace era we've talked about this. Yeah. And it is because if Taylor Swift comes out, um, the domino <laughs> effect that that has, because the thing is that not only would that confirm that obviously, like, Diana Agron, Juju uh-huh. Hadid, uh-huh. Uh, Kelly Kloss, obviously. Uh-huh. All her besties. Are, are yeah. AF, like, gay yeah. AF, fruity, now, no longer on the low, yeah. now on the high. Yeah. Gay on the high. <laughs> and these are also relationships that have ended. So that means that there are other girlfriends of these people that she is just now outed. <laughs> that, like, that is going to create, like, a spiderweb effect, domino, like, the coming out hurt around the world, like, it... I mean, I think, like, every, all the gaylers say this, but, like, Taylor Swift has already come out to the people who know what's up, you know what I mean? Like, she did not wear that bi pride flag like wig mm-hmm. in the bi bracelet i think we talked about this as well in other yeah we've talked about this so Taylor often heavy. because we talk yeah. about gaylorism all the time it's our religion actually um and mm-hmm. like you know in miss americana she says this is what makes me me and it's gay pride you know like girl yeah, we the pride see and you also the me single coming out on lesbian visibility day you're not slick. You're the not sort of, slick. like, gender-bending element of, like, the man. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. also the way that, like, she, and, and throughout even the me music video, like, I don't she's just, she's a campy little bisexual. And people who can't see that, like, ha, I don't know, it's, I don't know what blanket you're living under. Like, what rock are you existing under? Like, what's going, because, like, she's all, and the thing, she's, she's been besties with Cara Delevingne for a while. Girl, girl, <laughs> like, as Oomphy Rebecca said. You know, in her in her tweet that's been echoed around the world at this point, you know. Oh, people don't even come out anymore. Female celebrities don't friend. even come out anymore. They just become yeah, very just close friends with Cara Delevingne. And I think that one photo from, like, the mid to that maybe, like, 2015, of Taylor, like, on FaceTime with, or, like, hanging out with, like, Dakota Johnson and Cara Delevingne is just so fucking funny. Like, girl. That's like, and that's the thing. And also, we talk about her, like, the queerness of girlhood, especially with, um, Uh, Folklore 7. Yeah, that one article that we keep on referencing. But also, like, there's so many blind items about her being gay. Like, you cannot tell me that all these insider, celebrity, lawyer, and random people in Hollywood are just straight up lying and incorrect about this type of shit because they were right about the Ellen DeGeneres shit. They were right about the um, Jeffrey Epstein shit. They were right about the, um, oh my God, what's his name? Harry, or Weinstein? What's his first name? Harvey. Harvey. And the other guy, the other guy. um, Bill Cosby. Yes, like, they were all right about these people. Like, 
the the insiders and and, the fucking... and Britney's conservatorship. Yeah, like a, and, and a lot good. of things is that like none of these things seem believable at the time, but it's like in the aftermath of these things, it's like oh duh, you know, and like that's the thing, like you not that you should always trust blind items. We also do have an episode where we go where we go through Gaylor blind items. If you want to check that know one out, exactly we didn't know shit about what a were. blind item was, but but now we know. Ever since now we have then, the context, like... and it's like guys, the evidence is, and also it's like just her social media activity, like. Like, mm-hmm. on Tumblr, <laughs> like, that woman has been overly online for, like, her whole life. Like, she has been overly online. Like, oh, my God. Yeah, no, she definitely, she's, she's, de- she definitely knows about the Gaylor discourse. She definitely, she definitely is gay. And she, <laughs> and it's been confirmed on many levels. And, um. Yeah, so I don't think, I, I don't, uh, like, the question, why won't Taylor Swift come out? I think she has. Yeah. And she has to the people who she knew. Yeah. Would pick up on her coming out. <laughs> like, even even as recent as the anti-rhyme in very first night, like... Where everyone's going insane about that shit? No yeah, way like, she was not like, intentional about that, like, girl. Or even the way that lesbians now talk about the way that they felt about the song Mine or... Yeah, the outro of her older music, yeah. Like... Taking the perspective of a man, She <laughs> has. She's been out... She said it. If you can't pick up on it, you can't pick up on it. I think also just like waiting for someone to say like I am bisexual publicly. Period. Like, I don't know. I just I don't know how I feel about that. Cause like, also I I think like more recently I think her and Joe did. Mm, Carrie Delevingne ever come out? No. Like, did she ever, like, make a post being like, I am gay? Like, no, it's just an accepted thing. Like, you know? Well, she started dating Ashley Benson. and oh, that They was, almost like, got her... married. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, like, and they just did really gay shit together publicly. So I think, like, it wasn't, like, necessarily coming out. But, I mean, that's not really different than how the Carly uh-huh, and Taylor uh-huh, era. Uh-huh, yeah, so yeah. if you didn't pick up on it, then you didn't pick up on it. And also, when it comes to like not coming out as a business new move or better for her in order to carefully maintain the crafted narrative. First of all, the crafted narrative over the past albums is that she is bisexual. <laughs> is that she <laughs> is sapphic and queer. So if anything coming out would just solidify the narratives that she has already crafted over her past albums but also like i think if you look in miss americana there obviously is a lot of people who want her to kind of even have a more conservative facade even if that's not her personal feelings or her own thoughts so the idea that maybe there are people who are just like this could be a consequence of you coming out for whatever reason whatever conversations they have about like her pr team or what um like celebrity publications want maybe to run her it. PR That's team like will be like will be like, girl, you cannot come out now. We've already spent your whole career trying to repress the gay rumors. <laughs> so if you come yeah. out, you, this is gonna you're undoing our decades of hard work. <laughs> yeah. So like, who knows what? Like, maybe she is out to the people on her team. Maybe they know, and it's just not something that she wants public it's not mm-hmm. even that her team is yeah she doesn't or that's the thing like coming out some people like like there's people in my life who i will never be out to and that's fine mm-hmm. like that's a, this is the thing like 
quote unquote being out like I'm out everywhere except for like some people because it's all situational like quote unquote coming out is this whole cultural thing that like really only exists for some people and for other people it doesn't really matter sometimes it's not even like being out it's just like if that's not relevant to the relationship like if you don't ask you don't ask it's not even that I'm not out to some people it's just like it fully is irrelevant to the relationship or how I want them to see Mm -hmm. me or how they Mm -hmm. already see me that it's not even that like I'm hiding that I'm a lesbian. It's just, like, it's so irrelevant. Like, I would say it, and then it just halt the conversation. Like, the, it, there would be no... It, it's, like... like Taylor what, walks, into the, walks into backstage at rehearsal and says, Guys, I have something to tell you. I'm gay. <laughs> Her band numbers are like, I mean, okay. <laughs> no, like, literally. Like, it would just... So, I mean, the thing is, is that, like, we love Taylor Swift because, yeah, she's you know, quirky. But and also, and if she ever, if she came out publicly and was like, guys, it's hashtag bisexual, um, bisexual awareness week. Everybody, mm-hmm. I'm, <laughs> like, even if she launches a whole merch line of, like, bisexual colors and it's just, like, her shit, oh my god, that shit would sell out so fast. Anyway, um, mm-hmm. even if she did that, like, imagine the amount of public scrutiny that is gonna, she's gonna face for being like, well, you've dated 15 guys, so, or, like, cause, like, think about the ways that, like, queer people just generally are, are treated in the way that our relationships are seen as, like, valid or not valid. And then people are gonna be like, oh, well, who have you been in gay relationships with? And she's gonna be like, well, that's not really any of your business. You know what I mean? Like, like, she has developed this relationship with the media where it's, like, she knows what is other people's business and what is not and other people's business is the art that she chooses to put on the world everything else is really close to her so if we're gonna call her gay girl what is she gonna say like literally if we're gonna speculate on the status of her relationship like she is not concerned about that because she at this point in her career she's not thinking about that anymore you know she's focusing Mm -hmm. on her grind she's in her bag you know like (laughs) and also like in terms of it being like headlines she talked about how folklore and evermore specifically are moving away from writing things that are supposed to be like bait for headlines or about someone yeah or and and with that i think we get like instead of it being accurate we get more truth in her writing and folklore and evermore like like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, in these fictional characters versus accuracy of of her side of the story which we get in other albums which is fun and i'm not but the thing is is that because it's this fictional like narrative and it's a narrative mm -hmm. that reflects upon her own narrative there's so many perspectives to it that i think is so wonderful because we're not just hearing the same of heartbreak and love it's like heartbreak within a specific context it's like love within the context of someone has murdered someone love within the context of you know what I mean? like like girl it's all yeah. these little fake things that like she doesn't need to clarify i didn't murder anyone she just needs to make the song <laughs> like yeah so i don't think that like at this point in her life i just don't think that she's interested in doing things for the sake of headlines or for the sake of an incredible cultural moment yeah like, and that's the thing about coming an out incredible cultural moment. right yeah <laughs> she makes a tiktok and it's it is trending for like a good 12 exactly. hours like, she doesn't even need to do anything for it to be a cultural moment at this point, you know? She's just Taylor Swift. Mm-hmm. In the other part of the message where he's talking about, like, different people close to her being gaylers, like, that just means she is gay. Because, girl, <laughs> the people she's choosing to have in her life, speculating on the internet publicly that Taylor is gay, being her actual co-workers and friends and peers, girl, 
She is spelling it out for us, you know? If she didn't want to work with people mm-hmm. who thought she was gay, she wouldn't. <laughs> and that's the other thing that I was going to say is, like, even me being, like, I think her and Joe are married. Like, that being even a, th- a theory that is out there or possible, as well as Gaylor, proves that, like, if this shit was really deterring her career bothering her to the point of like keeping her and her team up at night it wouldn't be possible like it it would it would be stomped out it would be explicitly denied public like like ever any little piece of evidence that we could have possibly amassed. first of all we wouldn't be able to amass this much specifically about Gaylor mm-hmm. if it wasn't true mm-hmm. like think of of a straight celebrity that you know like that is str- a straight, straight. How many p- possible gay pieces of evidence could you scrape up for them? Not as much as Taylor Swift. Like it's comparable to the Cardell Levines and Ashley Benson's and Dakota Johnson's and people who have already publicly come out who happen to have a, a similar level of gay allegation evidence to someone who somehow hasn't come out yet. Do you, do, you, do you, is everyone hearing how how silly that sounds? Like if someone was like, "Oh, Renaissance is friends with Sunny," and Sunny is tweeting about Renaissance being gay, I wonder if there's a possibility that Renaissance is still straight. Like, <laughs> like think about it. Think about it. Like, like oh my gosh, Sunny and Renaissance have a have a podcast called The Lavender Menace with the lesbian flag icon. I wonder if they're lesbian. Like, think. <laughs> about it think about it i also think that like uh oh that phoebe bridgers is a gayler and taylor swift reached out to (laughs) like actively like was the first person who messaged you think that if you are true a straight person is genuinely Mm -hmm. upset at someone else thinking that they're gay within their own career field Uh uh like if that was something that happened we wouldn't have the version of nothing new that we have like that's why Taylor doesn't work with misogynist dudes. That's why she works with, like, people that she, you know, that she's relied on for many years or people that she thinks are genuinely cool. And if the people she mm-hmm. thinks are genuinely cool thinks that she's gay, then maybe she probably is gay. <laughs> uh, I also think, like, what the thing... it's just simple. It doesn't have to be a, a big It's simple. It's simple. Taylor she doesn't need a post. Pride event. It's just... <laughs> Taylor Swift theme pride. That's just what when, Lover when Taylor is Swift as an album, comes out honestly. with her own flavor of like sky vodka and like poppers or something, <laughs> and then people are like, "I finally think that Taylor Swift is gay." She starts selling the fucking the pride flag with like her face on it, like <laughs> as on the merch she section. She has a sponsorship with Adam and Eve, like <laughs> it's <a> whole. <laughs> The niche side of YouTube that you'd have to be on to get a sponsored by Adam and Eve reference, but I believe in our listeners to have come across such content. Also, like, with the last part of this take in terms of Taylor Swift's actively seeing our theories on social media, girl, she's she has herself said, yeah, I stalk my fans, and I... <laughs> in her interviews she'll be like yeah i like look at all my fans theories and sometimes they're like right and sometimes they like like they like pick up on things that like 95 percent are is stuff that i planned and like five percent is like stuff that like i didn't even think about like 
she is lurking. In and the way that she replies to people on TikTok, uh-huh. girl, that is a millennial. That is, <laughs> she's using the crying cat emoji, the crying laughing cat emoji, all caps. <laughs> she just learned the word bestie like maybe five months ago. In terms and she of can't new, stop using it. <laughs> she loves it. Like me a tiktok oh yeah yeah. it was one that you texted to me like right before i started recording of the little pause that she takes to know that the tiktok is recording because obviously (laughs) she's recording like in app like these aren't like professionally video edited things that are like being posted on the tiktok account right like she's doing the okay so hi guys it's taylor swift like like she's doing the whole thing so like i could definitely like be like joe being like Taylor, you have to put the phone down. <laughs> you can't keep replying to TikTok. Like, it's late. Like, Get off lights are already off. Like, it's just the blue light, I'm like, scrolling. radiating her face. Giggling like, maniacally. <laughs> like, hearing the same 15 seconds of her own song, just, like, yeah. all these posts, again. like, underneath the audio. Oh, God. Like, I see that for her. So, I obviously think she's aware of the Gaylor theories. And like I said... There's, it's too popular Gaylor for her have, to not know. And the Gaylor theories have been around for so long that why would... It, it wouldn't make sense for her to continue writing lyrics that feed <laughs> Gaylor theories. Like, this theory has been around for seven, six years at this point, when which multiple albums have come out. So if she didn't want people to interpret her lyrics as gay or sapphic, whether or not for her or for themselves, then that wouldn't be an option. She wouldn't keep making sapphic music, but she does. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Oh, my God. And um, I think she knows. At Groupon Mom on TikTok, she just started a podcast called The Archer, where this purely Gaylor content. I haven't checked it out yet, mm-hmm. but I will because I like her uh, TikTok videos that like goes lyric by lyric unpacking the queer Same content days. there. But um, our mutuals. Our mutual, we're our mutual slay. I think one of her TikToks about Taylor, it wasn't like a queer analysis, was liked by Taylor. So like, you know that woman has seen her account and Miss Groupon Mom's queer and every other video is her being like, this bitch is gay. Like, come on, come on. You mm-hmm. like, you think but Taylor also, doesn't. Uh, at this point, because of like things like that, I think Taylor likes the tease. Likes <laughs> the game. And the same way that she said that, like, now she likes, she, like, makes things for the possible Easter eggs to be made because she likes that game. Yes, she yes. Having Easter eggs at her, so that her fans can find them, and it's, like, a game that we play together. And I think with the growing popularity of Gaylorism, especially with how many sapphics loved Folklore and Evermore, like, came back to the Taylor Swift camp because of it. It'd be insulting to her intelligence. Do not undermine my intelligence. Like, to think that Taylor Swift is unaware of what she's doing. Mm. To be like, Mm. oh, I don't know if Taylor Swift knows that this... Cut it. Cut it out. Cut it out. Like, she knows. I think it's fun. I think if I had my own little fan base of just sapphic fans away from other straight fans and could play this little, like, cat and mouse game, like, she's a Sagittarius. She's a fire sign. She's Taylor Swift. She's out. She's here. She's proud. <laughs> she's here. She's queer. Like, <laughs> it's just, it is what it is. 
But thank you, Ike, for your email. A lot of content. A lot to unpack there. Indeed. I hope, I hope you're satisfied. And I hope you listen to Reputation a couple more times. Now, it's time to get into the shared media. Woo! Ooh, I'm very excited. I'm very excited. I'm excited and nervous. Yeah? Nervous and excited. Are you nervous? Because this movie is very good. I like it a lot. However... In the same way that some of the things that we talk about with bisexuals is like intercommunity conversations, I feel like a lot of the things in passing, I'm like, this is a black people conversation. I'm not sure if the general public should have access to this in terms of like, I feel like if you're not black, I feel like there just has to be a detail or like this underlying thing that you're missing that I just don't know can be explained. And also, I was reading some of the letterbox reviews after we watched it, and, like, there are just some white reviewers, specifically, that I'm like, I don't think you get it. I just don't (laughs) think you get it. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't think white people should be allowed to think that they can have takes or draw conclusions from this film, because I just don't think... Yeah, that's fair. ...that you can get it. Yeah. That's how I feel about, like, men and, like, birds of prey. It's like, you're just Mm -hmm. not gonna get it. You're literally not going to get it because it's not for you. It's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the people who wrote and directed and star in this, are they're not thinking about you. So look away, you know? Like, mm-hmm. And that's fair for a, for a lot of media. Some media is just meant to be consumed by certain people or meant to be consumed by people who, like, at least have an understanding of what's going on and the context of, like, why something is being made in the way that it is, you know? Mm-hmm. Especially with, like, Rebecca Hall as the director of this and who her mother is, that plays a really big part in terms of the conversation to be had around this movie, especially since it's, like, an adaption. I feel like... And we talk about this in an earlier episode in season two. We we mentioned this adaptation and how we wanted to talk about it. So now we are. Mm -hmm. Wow. Our consistency. Slay. And this is like the second Rebecca Hall project that we are doing on this podcast because she was in Mr. Marston and the Wonder Woman. And she played the wife, Elizabeth, who was the wife of Professor Marston, who was the creator of Wonder Woman. And that movie was directed by... Angela Robinson, who is a black lesbian. So Rebecca Hall loves working in in and for and with black projects and actors and creators. Black sapphics, cool. it's true. Mm-hmm. Cause this movie is very sapphic. This book is too, like just the content in general. It's yeah. I so I've read the novella Passing by Nell Larson. I read it like a year or two ago. It's very good, highly recommend. And I have some thoughts on the adaptation element of it, because in the book, like, we, it's mostly, what's the word? Episcop, epic, epist, the word that describes a book that is comprised of letters, basically. It's like, yeah. It's like almost journalistic. Um, yeah, from the I've perspective. I've read those kinds of, of novels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before. Epistolary, that's the word. It's an epistolary novel from the perspective of um, Rini who is the main character and she is the woman who lives as a black woman in a black Harlem community with her black husband and black children Mm -hmm. and she sort of encounters this white woman who is actually black in public one day and then she ends up named Claire who is like actually a childhood acquaintance and then they develop Mm -hmm. like a weird relationship basically that is along many 
different lines and so in the book like we see sort of all of her thoughts her being like really unsettled and weirded out by this person and then also thinking about like oh I remember when I was a kid like she was always that weird girl who's kind of standing in the corner all the time like damn and it was interesting seeing the ways that like those little details and stuff either shifted or were just like different throughout it anyway what were your thoughts generally preface I have not read the novella. I want to. I have full intention to. But just for the context of this podcast, I have not read the novella. So I'm Mm -hmm. simply remarking on the adaption and the film visual Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. aspect of the movie. With that being said, the moment we saw Claire, because TBH, I forgot who the actress is were playing and and who they were I only you just thought Tess of them thompson. as their as their yeah actress. yeah i i knew tess thompson but i forgot about ruth nega who i believe played yeah. claire yeah the moment we saw her i was like that's a black woman i was like mm-hmm. that is a black woman mm-hmm. i like there's just something where i was like this is it but also just the genius nature of the movie being a noir film a, a black and white film obviously yeah <laughs> that is Black amazing and white. yeah yeah and and it, and it would the the nature of the film would have changed completely if it was in color so on black and white film she looks white but like she doesn't and so i was like like, like she's white no in that her skin and her hair mm-hmm. is white because she's blonde and she's very light mm-hmm. she has she mm-hmm. has the features like on an individual level of a white woman but she is mm-hmm. not a white woman. And it's clear to people who are not looking at the world in a quote-unquote black and white way, you know? like Yeah, and but one detail that I really, really thought was a little bit genius of Miss mm-hmm. Rebecca Hall was that we see Rainy passing at the beginning of the movie. Like, yeah, first yeah. we just see, we hear footsteps and talking, and it sounds like white woman, but we don't, actually know that it's white woman but like mm-hmm. i was like oh that sounds like white woman talking and then it is but the in in order for rainy to pass in the world she also has to like disguise herself and cover herself because we mm-hmm. only see like the bottom of her nose and like her mouth because mm-hmm. she's wearing this hat mm-hmm. and like it's like she looks through mm-hmm. the sheerness of the hat and everything so she has to like conceal herself in mm-hmm. order to pass as a white woman mm-hmm. and she like alters her voice a little bit but then claire her face is exposed you see all of her hair and she's just like out as what like you know like she doesn't have to cover herself in order to pass in the way that rini does because rini living her life is out as a black person so that i thought was like really interesting i think like i saw conclusions saying that it seems like claire wanted to return back to Harlem and like regain her life as a black person Mm -hmm. and I don't necessarily think that that is a hundred percent my conclusion from the film if if the book changes that then like that's that's different from my initial thought on the film was that Claire adapted so many aspects of whiteness from when she was removed from the black community and passing as a white woman even in her marriage 
that like she adapted the view of the black community in an almost like there's a term that's used is it cultural tourism or like a voyeuristic almost kind of way like she could be black and white at the same time but not actually have to like live and internalize the realities of living as black that Rainey's husband is like very adamant on making that distinction specifically for like their sons of what it is to be black and the consequences of that and just Claire's life is so different that I don't know I just feel like when I was reading the letterbox reviews people were coming to conclusions about Claire's intentions that I'm not necessarily sure I saw the evidence for in terms Mm. of the film yeah also I want to clarify actually I want to correct myself the book isn't necessarily episcolary it's like it is more it kind of looks back on it. So it's like, this is what I remember, I think is what one of the first chapters starts with. So it's separated into parts. So so there's three parts to it, encounter, re-encounter, finale, which I think is interesting because we also see that in the three-act structure of the movie. In the second chapter of Passing, we're, we're in Rini's mind and we're seeing her as she's sitting in the, like, and this is the opening scene of the movie. She's sitting in the cafeteria and there's a woman looking at her And she's like, why is this lady looking at me? Like, this is really weird. And she's like, is this white lady discovering that I'm black? And this is her next thought. Absurd, impossible. White people were so stupid about such things for all that they usually asserted that they were able to tell. And by the most ridiculous means, fingernails, palms of hands, shapes of ears, teeth, and other equally silly rot. They always took her for an Italian, a Spaniard, a Mexican, or a... G, it's spelled G-I-P-S-Y. Never, when she was alone, had they even remotely seemed to suspect that she was a word for black person. No, the woman sitting there, woman being Claire, sitting there, was staring at her, couldn't possibly know. So, like, there's that moment of, like, misrecognition where she's like, have I been found out? Versus her realizing, wait, no, 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 no. This is a completely different situation of, like, of like someone recognizing her basically and mm-hmm. we see that tenseness in the film like done really well i think like it almost it follows it to the letter in which like but like in the moment as opposed to looking back on a situation this is the thing is i feel like conversations around passing and perceptions of race end up putting the conversation at a very slippery slope to like race science yeah. and like yeah. well this feature means that you look like this race mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so I'll be so it's like I don't want to get into that but then also there's like I think in the in the movie between Rainey and the fictional writer mm-hmm. he asks like oh can you because he doesn't clock Claire as mm-hmm. black at mm-hmm. first until Rainey kind of like Wink, nudges wink, him, nudge, yeah. nudges him yeah. to be like notice someone mm-hmm. <laughs> and he asks like is there a kind of like kinship involved like maybe it's not facially but like is there like a kinship connection mm-hmm. and it's like strange because i feel like saying yes to that is a form of race science <laughs> like i mm-hmm. but i've also like i have felt that inexplicable connection where mm-hmm. i've like seen someone who can pass someone on my staff who I work with right now 
his father is i think half black so he's like a quarter he kind of he he doesn't move through his life as white necessarily but more like of like um latin descent because um his parents are puerto rican and mexican but like being seen as black is like almost optional i guess for him Mm -hmm. and when i first met him at first was like oh he's a white dude and then I, like, got to know him. Like, I saw him closer, like, not from mm-hmm. across the room. And I was mm-hmm. like, I think he might be black. Mm-hmm. And, but but when when meeting people who look like that, sometimes, mm-hmm. still to this day, their family mm-hmm. doesn't know if they're black. Or their family mm-hmm. doesn't identify mm-hmm. as black, even mm-hmm. if they have some form of ancestry. So, like, mm-hmm. you don't really ask about it until someone mm-hmm. discloses on their own. Mm-hmm if they're Mm -hmm. black or not and so once Mm -hmm. he did then i was like i could clock you those kinds of things still affect the way people like live today so Mm -hmm. it's kind of like hard to have these conversations without being misconstrued which is why when we were like when i was watching the movie and also i'm like excited but nervous for this episode is because i feel like it's very much like an inter-community conversation Mm -hmm. to be had about these Mm -hmm. things because like black people can have these conversations i guess more easily without necessarily falling into like oh so all black people look like this or all black people have this kind of energy Mm -hmm. or all black Mm -hmm. people do this Mm -hmm. to define blackness but like that part of the movie that aspect of it i found interesting because also Mm -hmm. like light-skinned people for some reason like there's a lot of hate on light skins and biracials which like is hate like real like 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 not real that they are the victims of colorism because it's not true but like criticisms of how light pe- light-skinned people move throughout the world is like mm-hmm. needed and those mm-hmm. conversations need to be had because colorism mm-hmm. is a very real thing and mm-hmm. darker-skinned people do face higher rates of discrimination so mm-hmm. i think like this film shows how if you are light-skinned or you do have certain complexion like privileges that's mm-hmm. not necessarily white privilege but like is also a conversation that like mm-hmm should be depicted more and had more like that's also very important and i think the film does a good job at showing that but i'm just not sure if the world trademark (laughs) like capital t capital w is ready for that conversation yeah i mean i think like if you're gonna go into this movie i don't really have a conception of this like you should probably read the book first and you should also probably do like other readings to sort of contextualize the situation of what's going on like if you don't have an implicit understanding of this or historical understanding of what race looks like for people in the 1920s um in a city so and i was going to recommend this book called black metropolis by saint Clair drake and horace r clayton specifically chapter seven because in chapter seven they talk about interracial relationships and passing and these are like this book is a compilation of statistical data and anecdotal data and interviews of people in chicago black people in chicago over the in the 30s in the early 30s late 20s because this was commissioned during the great depression uh it was one of the new deal situations they were trying to you know he was trying to give roosevelt was trying to give jobs to graduate students and so this is sort of like an anthropological sociological compilation of a bunch of people's like lives and experiences and in this study that they in chapter seven where they're talking about interracial relationships it was so interesting Um, because 
there was like they found like 180 interracial relationship interracial relationships most of them were like the man the head of the household was black and then the wife was white and um because like and like it was like the whole chapter was very very it was so thoroughly done obviously because like you're getting so many different perspectives but like it also kind of reveals the reality that like interracial relationships between black women and white men were more likely to be a situation of like a john and a prostitute or a and like that develops into like a, a more like formal relationship or it's going to be a situation that can't really be recorded because it's someone who's past and a white man so it's it's someone who is being perceived as and being written down as white who is then also married to someone as white. So, like, the interracial relationship element to it is, like, not... It, it can't be something that can be pinned down because the people who have passed are... They they are removed from the community for a reason. They don't want to be associated. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be seen as black because they want to live out their lives as white people. You can find this book for free on I think archives or something. You can find this book and the chapter I'm talking about for free on the internet because uh, it was it's been published since the early 20th century. So okay, sorry, I'm on Letterbox uh-huh. and I did the lowest first. First of all, the the way that all of the first low ratings are from uh white people very telling yeah very very telling yeah but this one hold on let me let me zoom into this profile picture real quick because the first line of the review says a white woman directing this yikes and it's like no no, but that's the point hello oh a white woman directing this lots of things going on here a light-skinned black person i'm presuming when i zoom in but like light skin um which is also like that's the freaking point the the, it's a one star a white woman directing this question mark question mark question mark question mark kind of yikes i like rebecca hall too i just don't want to see black women stories being told through the lenses of white women so the thing is that if you like rebecca hall one google search will show you that her mom doesn't identify as white and is has identified as black despite being very very light and that rebecca being her daughter and having a white dad also is very very light and can move through the world as white if so choosing to do so but at the time of when her mom was growing up and probably her grandparents regardless of how light they were, they were seen as black and as African-American because if you had any relationship or any descent from anyone who's black or from Africa, you are automatically seen as black. So the fact that this movie is, that this person watched this movie and even knows who the director is and still sees this movie as being told through the lens of white women, I think completely like, misses the point because the whole point of the movie is like what is whiteness what is blackness like that movie and this book is really Mm -hmm. interrogating that what are the binaries that we impose and how are they be how arbitrarily are they imposed and when people respond to this movie by arbitrarily imposing these boundaries um onto them oh (gasps) wait wait hold on there's more there's more there's more there's more 
Okay, I'm just going to read the whole thing. So, Through the Lens of the White Woman. I finished a movie and as a... Oh, I'm presuming the movie. And as a passing light-skinned black woman, this is not compelling in the slightest. It's it's so bad, it works as satire. I don't expect non-black folks to understand this, but the reviews on here clearly result of white people not understanding colorism in the black community at all. Which I find that this being their conclusion very baffling because it's like the call is coming from inside the house in my opinion as someone who's mixed as someone who's who is light-skinned i like not to do like biracial on biracial crime but like i think that you're the one not getting it this anonymous reviewer since you didn't volunteer yourself to be on this podcast the third part is of this review too many non-black folks have taken it upon themselves to tell me about rebecca hall's mom I saw her. Rebecca is still white. Please be silent on this topic unless you are willing to learn and truly understand this from the black perspective. Thanks. This movie is an adaptation of a book written in 1920s, set in the 1920s. What race looked like in the 1920s, very different from today. Yes, by today's standards, Rebecca Hall is a white woman. Yeah. But guess what? 50 years ago, she would not be. 20 years ago, she probably would not. Like, race is one of those things that is constantly moving. And that's what this book, that's what this book, that's what this movie, that's what the adaptation of this movie is talking about. That's why the casting was intentional. That's why Rebecca Hall is the one directing this. Rebecca Hall's mom was literally born in, like, I think 1950 when I looked. And, like, at that time, being born in 1950 would have been marked as a black child. Would have been... Right. Like, she lived her whole life as a black person, a black American woman. That was her whole life, you know? And, like, being the child of someone who is a black American woman is Mm -hmm. obviously going to shape your experiences and your understanding of race in a way that someone who is the child of a white American woman is not going to experience. It's just weird to sort of, I think, reduce people's experiences and perspectives on things into such a again, black and white sort of situation, which is what this movie is itself criticizing. But And the fact that they're like, unless you're willing to learn and truly understand from the black perspective. It's like, you're not learning and understanding the, the history of what, the, like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait, but okay, anyway, from back to anyway, Black sorry, Metropolis. Sorry. That, just, that um, just literally shocked me because it's like, they had ran like straight into the point battering into the wall (laughs) but like also like they're the intended demographic of like if you are light and black then like this shows that like also they call themselves passing according to their profile picture i wouldn't really call them passing like even i am quite light and i do not pass like i don't even think i'd be able to pull a tessa thompson yeah yeah. And but, well that's the thing. Anyways. It's like okay, I was going to um the the chapter from um Black Metropolis I'm reading from mm-hmm. is called Crossing the Color Line. And this was this was a really interesting uh section where this chapter is called A Rose by Any Other Name. And it says passing in quotation marks is one of the most prevalent practices that has arisen out of the American pattern of race relations. It grows from the fact that one that one drop of 
quote, colored blood is sufficient to make an otherwise completely white person a black person, as there are thousands of black people whom neither colored nor white people can distinguish from full-blooded whites, it is understandable that in the anonymity of the city, many black people, quote unquote, pass for white daily, both intentionally and unintentionally. But should white people become aware of their remote colored ancestors, they would in all probability treat them as black. And then the sort of asterisk is like, the authors have interviews which suggest that some white people in the North are willing to overlook a small infusion of black blood, provided the person who is passing has no social ties to black people. Several persons when questioned on this manner, matter uh, said that they knew of white people who were suspected of having black blood and that it was a joking matter. In one case, everybody, included the sus- including the suspect, saved face by saying it was perhaps Indian blood. And and then the statistics on this, where it's like there are there are few figures on the amount of passing which takes place in the United States. Estimates of the number of people who permanently leave the black group and are assimilated into white society each year vary from twenty five thousand to three hundred thousand. These are only estimates, and no conclusive body of statistical data is or ever could be available, especially on those who who pass only temporarily or occasionally. There is not, however, a single Black family known to the authors that has not been aware of instances, sometimes of scores of instances, in which friends, acquaintances, or relatives have crossed the color line and become white, quote, gone over to the other side, as Black people phrase it. So, this book is a compilation of like sociological texts and studies like like hundreds of interviews and data and analysis collected over like a over many years and since this was published in like the 1930s you know in this book this book and this movie is set in the 1920s in harlem so not chicago but another major city in the north like there this is a cultural and historical phenomenon that is like so overlooked within the current context current cultural context of race that because it's been erased because that's the nature of passing the nature of passing Mm -hmm. is that you get erased from one identity into the other you assimilate fully into and like it's so common that between anywhere between twenty thousand to three hundred thousand people every year pass like and this, like, this is what people, this is what people who study race as their life's work. Black people who study their race as, as race as, a, as their life's work are coming to these conclusions. Like, and this was a hundred years ago. So yeah, like a hundred years ago, what it meant to be white and what it meant to be black, completely different. And I think like, mm-hmm. it's really interesting to look at historical fiction in the current day society where people are like for good reason adamantly opposing white people who claim blackness in order to capitalize off of culture that they ultimately don't really have a tie to so there's opposition to people who don't pass who don't look black and who aren't from black communities acting quote unquote black whatever that acting quote unquote act quote unquote black like like so there's obviously opposition to that um which like makes sense within the cultural context for which we exist in now because like I think black cultural currency looks very different now than it did like 70 years ago. I mean, there are elements that like still ring true, but I think like there the cultural gatekeeping that's going on right now, um, it makes sense for the world that we live in, but it's not an applicable framework. I wish there was more of it. I feel like <laughs> right. there's more, 
black cultural gatekeeping in the 1920s where this book is yes, being set than there was yeah because you had to choose a side it was literally like you pick a fucking side and then you either mm. foray into the other group occasionally or you don't also in a, in a part of this other book like Black Metropolis, oh my god, it's so good. I cannot recommend this enough because in chapter seven, uh, in Crossing the Color Line, um, they talk about how like they were talking to some of these people and they're these they're black couples who pat who each person in the couple both pass and so they would go to white social events and we see social events in passing like in the movie you know and mm. you and when you go to it it's like it's all black people with maybe like a couple white people or it's all white people those are your two options really especially in harlem and new york at this time like there's a white people who are going in to like peruse you know look at people whereas like but the thing is is that in white communities and in white social spaces a similar thing is happening except on a visual level everyone is white because there are passing black people who would sneak into these events and be like oh wow this is really fun no one thinks i'm black and so we're having mm. the same experience as all the other white kids around me but then they'll come back and they'll be like they'll like you know you're feeling like oh haha got away with something but and this book describes it like I, I'm not I'm not just coming to these conclusions. This is literally the a- anecdotal data of people's mm-hmm. experiences. And what was funny, what was interesting from this book was that the the people who would go out and do this as like a regular thing, you know, like okay, we're gonna this Saturday night we're gonna go out to a social event hosted by some white church and not the social event that me and all my peers, as you know, people who live in a black neighborhood with black family and a black church would go to. Um, I'm going to make that decision intentionally. However, when you go back to your black community, those people are not, they can't talk about that shit openly because the other people would look at them kind of weird. They'd be like, why would, <laughs> what? So only mm-hmm. the passing people in the black community kind of talk to each other about those experiences um, because they're like, no, the, all, these other people wouldn't get it. And also it'd be kind of weird to them. But to these people, it's like, when you're just, you know, it's just the couples of the people who, like, have happened to pass. It's one of those, like, secret things. It's like, oh, you went to that event, too? Oh, my God, like, me, too. Like, wasn't that crazy? It's one of those things that's, like, it's more underground, I guess, and more of, like, a weird cultural phenomena within the larger Black community, according to the data and anecdotal evidence that we see. I feel like the white people of today do more, are more related to the white people that would go to the Black events to peruse then 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 it is the black people who can pass who went to the white events but i definitely think that like for me at least especially being the only black person in my family on both sides and and growing up with a number of white friends and white latina friends so people who ethnically weren't 100% European, but were still white racially. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think for me, my passing didn't come from, like, my physical features because I feel like people would look at me and obviously be able to tell that I'm black. But mm-hmm. a more, like, cultural passing mm-hmm, where I could mm-hmm. position myself to be able like, they forget that I'm black mm-hmm, almost. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not because, like, any physical augmentation, but, mm-hmm. like, the pop cultural references that I know mm-hmm. and the idioms that I use and mm-hmm. my comprehension of the way that white family dynamics mm-hmm, <laughs> work mm-hmm. like and being able to predict that and be able to make myself comfortable in those spaces partly because that's kind of how my family ran but in my family is also just like culturally mixed and weird and blended in so many different ways that when I would go over to my white friend's house who are like white white mm-hmm. and I can make myself comfortable or like kind of 
invisibleness, my whatever black side or whatever that's because like it's really uncomfortable to be the only black person in a room and have people treat you differently because of it it's much more comfortable to have someone's old white grandparents see you as just their grandchild's friend than it is to be the only black person in a room I'd say I stopped doing that as like my default as I got older and I was able to just like be more myself and it's like be more comfortable in the parts that are are seen as like black things that Mm -hmm. I just do as a black person who grew up in the United States versus like and having a different friend group than when I had the friend group that I had in like middle school and like Mm -hmm. early high school because at that Mm -hmm. point it was much more like for serve not survival because not like they would have like harmed me but like I guess like like social ostracization or like survival Mm -hmm. in terms of of social hierarchies so I definitely understand like passing for that but at the same time like I I couldn't talk about the way that I was culturally passing if you will if you'll let me Mm -hmm. use that term um Mm -hmm. with like my friends who my black friends who like was were only friends with our black friends like didn't have any white friends Mm -hmm, and who also mm -hmm. grew up in a black family they wouldn't really Mm -hmm. have understood how what I was doing wasn't me necessarily whitewashing myself but also Mm -hmm. I think what has shown like the changing of the times is that like for white people who decided to pass as their like way of living never see the black community again like mm, that's mm-hmm. why claire is so shocked and that's why mm-hmm. like she has to keep she wants to go yeah yeah that's what well, keeps that's on writing the letters keep her her friendship on reading on like the dl from like her husband yeah, yeah. and yeah. why when her husband sees rainy when she's not passing when she's with another visibly black friend is like such a big deal right because like claire is supposed to no longer have any connection with the black community but and like, she's really for me, risking everything to 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 her reach out to Rini. and she and she you know spoiler she loses mm-hmm. her life like mm-hmm. because of the fact that she wants to have a connection to a community that she no but longer that's can the thing is like i don't know like i just don't see that in the character but to finish my point about the changing of the times is like claire like all people who had to pass 100 years ago like leave the black community like they're no longer black and for me, when I was younger and I had to, like, not deal with microaggressions as frequently um, mm-hmm. and had to, like, pass in certain spaces, I still could, like, be black and have black friendships and not be seen as, like, a whitewashed version of myself or someone who completely denies their blackness. Mm-hmm. Like, I've never mm-hmm. denied my blackness um, in a way that people who passed 100 years ago wouldn't have had that choice. But, like... With Claire, like, Rini is, like, the first black person that she's seen in, like, a really long time because in really early in the movie, the husband mentions how, like, uh, Claire doesn't even want, like, um, black housemaids or, like, nannies or anything like that. She refuses to be around any black people. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's, like, been a long Mm -hmm. time because when they Mm -hmm. first meet, they're like, oh my gosh, I haven't seen you in so long, like... Rainy barely even was able to recognize Claire, not only because of the passing, but also just, like, the passing of time. Right. And so when her husband is being 
very, very racist. Like, mm-hmm. very, very racist to the point mm-hmm. where, like, Rainy is like, oh my gosh, like, fucking get me get out me of here. Get me out of here. Yeah. Like, like it, a very get out situation. Yeah. Um, like, uh, like, Claire's like, sorry, and like, apologizes to Rainy, but she has no intention on, on abandoning the white community or the life that she has and she and in the first community she's like claire asks rainy oh do you have everything that i've wanted or maybe that's rainy's response and then like claire repeats it back to her she's had everything that she has everything that she ever wanted and part of Mm -hmm. that is whiteness so to Mm -hmm. me it doesn't make sense for the conclusion of the movie big asterisks Mm -hmm. of the movie to be that Claire just wanted a connection to the black community because she had no intention mm-hmm. on leaving the white community. Mm-hmm. She she mm-hmm. resigned her status as a resident of the black community, mm-hmm. and when she became white, she became a visitor of the black community. And comparable in that, like, I do not have a space in girlhood, despite the fact that in my in my childhood I was a girl. Like I once occupied the space of girlhood, and early womanhood. And I don't. But I still have the conclusions and the experience that I had from that time. However, that no longer applies to me. Not only because I'm non-binary, but also just for the simple fact that I'm not a girl. Claire has the experience and the memories and the childhood of being a black child. So and you're saying, like, you think Claire taken... is, like, grown out of it, basically? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, that, like, that can never be taken away from Claire. However, once she crossed over in in the context of of this time period in in this movie mm-hmm. she can't uncross she maybe if like there's longer and like we said spoiler alert she dies at the end like maybe mm-hmm. she left her husband moved back to harlem let her hair be whatever form of like was natural or the black hairstyle at the mm-hmm. time maybe 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 but like from what we know from from the conclusions that can be drawn in the movie as it is out, she is a visitor in the black community. She has she is a visitor in that moment, but the thing is is that she is a temporary visitor in the way that she is also a temporary white woman. And that she is it's temporary because as soon as her husband realizes that she is black, she's no longer a white woman. He kills her. Yeah. You know? But that's because, like, her husband found out. It's not like she told her, like, she was packed up her bags, left, and was like, right. I mean, she doesn't have a, uh, she she has no autonomy in the situation. Yeah. Um, And even, that's the part that I'm talking about. Right. I think, but the thing is, is that the autonomy of choosing to pass is like, it's one of those things that's like, is it really, uh, is it really something that's autonomous? Like, is it just one of those things that, you're you're kind of put into because of the situation that you're in it's kind of similar to the nature of i think sex workers at this time too where it's like you you're just kind of like you're poor and you Mm -hmm. you have a commodity and so that's what you do you know if you're black and you want to move up in the world but you don't see any accessible ways but you know that you can pass as white that's why 30,000 to 300,000 people like, a year were choosing to pass, you know? I agree, and I definitely don't think that it's, like, completely autonomous. But also, like, we do see that Rainy is able to go in and out of passing, and she has a... She's it's conditional, a very, though. Like, she, no, she but that's what I mean. Right. 
Like, like she, but, but she like couldn't the, marry a white man because he no. would clock her, right? Like, we have more evidence within the film to see that Claire chose to marry the man that yeah. she married. Yeah. It wasn't, like, an arranged marriage by any yeah. means. And they even mm-hmm. talk about this before the husband comes in of about their kids because Claire says that her daughter is, is white. Like, mm-hmm. 100% white. And, but that's and, why she can't but, leave. And, right? Because yeah, she, she but, has her kid. Rini married a darker mm-hmm. black man mm-hmm. because and if black kids, married right. a a light-skinned man or a biracial man then their kids could have possibly been born a very similar color yeah but her kids even with her husband could have also have been light you know it's one of those things that's like these like, things are genetically weird and impossible they to still really would guess. have a dark they still would have a dark dad you still wouldn't be able to navigate yeah, but also it's Without. like, we don't see Rainy or Claire's parents. Like, we don't know what they look like. They could look like anything, you know? But as long but as, and this is the other thing. In, in the community of blackness, it would it, there's no way that their parents aren't black and for them to have Yeah, but this the is the thing. It's all, all the things, but this is the thing. Claire also grew up in a black community with black parents. Yeah. And then, and, and we Left. don't really know the decision. We don't really know what's in between being a child and being black and being an adult and being mm-hmm. white. We don't really know what's going on here. It's all murky. And I think it's murky intentionally in the book and mm-hmm. the movie. It's intentionally murky because we don't really know Claire's intentions. We just see her for what she is. And then we see the and we see the sort of the end that she comes to. But I think what this movie is ultimately saying is that the way that people, the way that socially imposed arbitrary boundaries create binary, like, community and safety sort of means that you either give up culture or hegemonic safety in any decision you make within society. And, like, something, another part of of what you were saying that made me think of Black Metropolis, um, Chapter 7, Crossing the Color Line, was, it was interesting because one of the anecdotes is was this white was this black mother who passes in some cases who went to a photographer to get her photos done and then the next time she she wanted to get her photos done again she brings her child and the photographer's like ew no because her child is is visibly black in the way that the mother is not and she's like what i thought you knew that i was black and he's like no i don't shoot black people and like ditches her like that's something that that was a, that's like a common phenomenon. Another, another situation that I'm not gonna read out because it'll be longer. But like another situation was this woman who was talking about how she was visiting her father down in the south. She was visiting relatives down in the south. She's like pretty light and um and she was trying to get on the train and she was getting on to the section for black people and the conductor was like, "What are you doing?" And she's like, "Uh," and so she just gets on the section for white people. Because it would have been too embarrassing for her to correct the conductor and be like, and then, and, but when she gets on the car, the conductor is like so apologetic and whatever, like, oh my God, I'm so sorry for thinking that you were black. And she's like, yeah, why would you think I was black? I'm, I'm a Jewess. Exactly her words. And she's like, <sighs> so she sits down in the, in the train and she's like, this is why I hate going down to the South. Like that was literally the interview that she taught in the mm-hmm. interview. She taught, she's like, I hate because it's, it's like those sort of cultural like polite things where we also see this in the very opening scene when when uh when Rini walks into walks into the uh restaurant and the waiter the white man waiter is like right this way ma'am and she's like there's like a little tense moment 
a little bit where we see where she's like, am I going to get clocked? And and that 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 tensity escalates as she's sitting there looking at the old white ladies and then looking at a white lady who ends up being Claire and not being white. I noticed that because it happens even that tenseness happens even before it happens in the cab because the cab driver would have not have recommended the hotel that he recommended if he clocked Rainy as black. And also you can see there's like this brilliant, it was one of my like really early, like is the small detail in the movie. And that's when I realized I was like, oh, I need to like pay attention. Like this movie's going to be a movie was she is like walking on the pavement in front of the hotel and she like she like is walking and she just barely stops and she waits for the doorman to assume that she wants to enter the building before she like stops and turns the the hotel but to go in because that is like another sign as of if she passes or not because if the bellman thought she was black then he wouldn't have opened the door for anyone who's walking down the street and then she would just kept walking would have been like okay i didn't pass but there's like it's like this small hesitation where like she hesitates and then the bellman's like oh that's a white woman i should open the door and then that is what like grants her entry and then the thing with the waiter like adds on top of it like you can just like feel the like she has to wait to see how they react to her before she knows if she's passing or not. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Real. Hashtag yeah. real. Oh, but also, um, on top of this chapter, there's the short story Recitative by Toni Morrison. It reminded me a lot of this film because it's about these two girls who are put in an orphanage, but they still have um, their living mothers, but like their parents aren't able to take care of them. So that's why they're put in the orphanage. And one is white and one is black. And we know that one is white and one is black, but we don't know which one. And like it's divided into three parts when they're children in the orphanage. And then when they're in their like early 20s. And one's working at a diner and one gets off of a Greyhound bus that's like full of groupies and people, I think, like heading west for some concert or something. And sees, they like meet again. One's getting off the bus, one's working at a diner and we don't know which one. And the third part is when they're both adults and they are like married and with children and they end up like living in the same town except one is like not very well off economically and one ends up marrying this like man who's like really rich and there's this protest that happens about busing desegregation yeah Yeah. but is that the name of like the actual policy yeah yeah. Yeah. okay so that and there's a protest and one line of women is like we don't want black kids in our school Mm -hmm. and then the other side is we don't want our black kids going to white schools Mm -hmm. And but then again, we don't know who mm-hmm. is on which side. Mm-hmm. So those are like the three times that we see them. And race is like such a big part of these people's lives. But we don't know which one is white and which one is black. So mm-hmm. there are moments you read and you're like figuring it out. But then also puts you in the position of like what assumptions or like what do you think are conclusions of like what's being presented that 
tells you about who's the mm-hmm. race of mm-hmm. which one. Like, why do you think that mm-hmm. this means mm-hmm. that this character is black? Yeah. And so... Um, I think those two pieces, these both of these pieces of media kind of show, like, how people react to these pieces of media reveal more mm-hmm. about their understanding of race than what the media itself is saying about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, how you interpret what Nella Larson is trying to say or what Toni Morrison is trying to say about race and then in their books show like tells you more about the politics of who you are and then the capacity for which that you understand history and race than anything else really like Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and and i probably read it like three or four times i'm gonna be the one to crack the code oh my god Um, (laughs) this is why i like like, reading debut and new releases because what do you mean i'm the one cracking the fucking code only (laughs) ten thousand other people have read read this (laughs) but yeah so i was like i still i'm just like Give give me give me a couple years. I'm gonna come back to this and I'm gonna like reread it and see what I think of these characters mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, but then I'm also like, what is this telling me about myself? Why do I think that this is a sign that this character is black? Also, mm-hmm. like being a black woman reading writing by a black woman, it's like, can does this give me insight? Does she know that there are gonna be other black women reading this? So is she also trying to throw us off the scent of to? Who is is of what yeah. race? Who's the like, audience, and why, and exactly. how is the how is the author targeting this? I think about this all the time when I'm reading stuff. It's like, who is the intended audience, and how are you catering towards them? I actually? think this book is also speaking of historical women's colleges. Uh, <laughs> this book is one of the required reading courses for the first year writing class of at Barnard College, Columbia, New York, which makes sense because you know it's about New York City. I thought it was interesting that this is a part of the like core curriculum this book i wonder what those classroom discussions look like considering that that school is like 80 percent white or whatever you know <laughs> like, i was gonna say like if like a white liberal <laughs> who thinks that, what are like, your takes on this well okay actually yeah, this made me think like about like emotional politics of like yeah <laughs> valid invalid hurt feelings that it uh yeah like no. Girl, I get don't, me away I, from this. <laughs> I don't want to know what you think about this movie. I don't want to know what conclusions you're coming to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This kind of transitions me into my recommendations because I was also, I think this is really relevant to a lot of things that we were talking about, especially in terms of like audience. And that, and the book I want to talk about um, is The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. This book has like gotten so much hype from every type of audience. It's like nominated for the Goodreads like Choice Awards, I think. Um, and it, and it follows these, and I read it, I really enjoyed it. I think I read it like four stars. Um, it's about these sisters, these twins who grow up in an all-black town that really prioritizes like having light-skinned children. So basically, they're all, it's all black people. Because um, this is in like the early, maybe like the 1920s, 1930s, um, in like a rural part of the America. And basically the whole point of like getting married and having kids is that your kids you want your kids to be lighter than you are so you're marrying someone who's like lighter than you or about as light as you to have kids who are like you know like that's sort of the logic going on we see these two sisters and at age 16 they like run away from home move to the big city and one of and they both start like working as like you know maid jobs like waitress like you know very low wage girl jobs for young women in the big city and we see as one of them, like, one day ends up being like, okay, I'm going to marry this white man who, like, really likes me. You know, someone who's, like, at least twice her age, like, 
very rich, powerful. And so in the tiny room that they share in the city, she she leaves a note that says, like, okay, bye. <laughs> Basically, and then, like, never speak again. That's the last time they ever speak to each other as sisters. So that, so the one lady, the one girl ends up marrying a white man. They end up moving to a house in, like, Beverly Hills. He doesn't know that she's black. And uh, she lives in fear of having a child and that child being dark. Other, the other woman is ends up marrying a black man outside of her community, so he's like pretty dark, and her ch- and she has a daughter who is also pretty dark. But she moves back to her hometown, and her, all the neighbors and everyone in the town looks at her weird because she's like they're like, why do you have a child who isn't light skinned? And also, her child is like really ostracized from her community, obviously. But basically, we follow the lives of these women, and then also those women's children and the ways that those women's children's lives and then the ways that their lives kind of cross paths but they never even talk after the age of 16 they never talk to each other up until maybe the end of the book but you don't really know and not even that it, it follows the shit from like the 1930s all the way up to like the late 20th century so it's like a generational saga where we're following two sisters lineages and the ways that their lives play out so drastically differently because of who they choose to marry, who they choose to have children with, and then, like, how they are rejected from their community. Like, and this is the thing, Britt Bennett, this is her second book. Her first book, it was The Mothers, which was also very widely appreciated in the literary circles as, like, very good. But this book has gotten so much hype. Everyone loves this book so much. And I just think it's so interesting because I'm like, what like the <laughs> like the the critical acclaim and general public appreciation of it was like I think it kind of shows the way that Britt Bennett was sort of, was able to tell the story that without the context of the history like people would interpret it so differently the way that people are reacting to passing obviously like mm-hmm. with no one like I think Britt Bennett was able to really flesh out the cultural context and nuance that was like necessary to even begin to have the conversation and to be able to frame uh, a, a narrative about what it means to be black but not look like it or black but in a way that doesn't that isn't acceptable to your community or black but like it's just very intelligent and I think that the intended audience part was like really well done because it's not written in a way that really caters to whiteness or centers whiteness but it also isn't like it doesn't treat you like you're dumb but also doesn't treat you like you know a lot about the history you know um so i think like that novel was like really really well done and it makes sense that it's so popular i just think it's kind of surprising because of i don't know i think the audience can audiences can be kind of stupid sometimes i mean oh oh there's also like a queer narrative in the vanishing half as well one of the characters is trans so which mm. is like we see that in like a mid-20th century context which is like really interesting it was interesting at the very beginning of the movie where claire is like talking to her husband and weenie is in the room and her husband is like oh my gosh like my wife hates black people like she won't even let them like live in our neighborhood or whatever because that almost exactly happens at the halfway point in the vanishing half where the passing woman is telling her husband we cannot hire black people to clean the house her husband is like oh we're hiring help and she's like you cannot hire black people and he's like okay well i mean whatever and then later in the book like a black family moves into the neighborhood it's an all-white neighborhood but like this black family is like very affluent like very wealthy very well respected in the hollywood elites this black family moves in 
And our main character is like really on edge. Like she is not happy about this. Mm-hmm. She's like, ah, because she's afraid she's going to be found out. The book is absolutely brilliant. And the mm-hmm. amount of like dread and like tensity that you feel from both perspectives of both of these women and then their children's lives. Like it's, it's just phenomenally done. Masterful, honestly. And like, because passing is such a short book and this movie is like, like, you kind of need to be smart in order to, like, get it. Like, I feel like The Vanishing Half is, like, a book that's, like, you don't really need to be, like, smart to get it. Like, the book explains the history and the cultural context to you. Like, you like mm-hmm. you don't need to ha- put, put on the fucking historical context before you go into it, be, which is how I think people are interpreting passing both the movie, like, the movie, like, wrong. As much as you can Im- interpret a movie wrong, you know, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. That sounds good. How long? How long is the book? Like, it's, is it a, is it a thick? It's pretty. It's a thick book. Like, it's maybe like this thick. It's I think like a 12, mm-hmm. 14 hour audiobook. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, it's a long one. I have a movie recommendation. Shocker, but this one reminds me of Passing. It's called Ame, like French, um, mm-hmm. loved A I M E X E, and Jaguar, and it's about these two lesbians who fall in love in berlin germany during world war ii in nazi germany one is jewish and she's a part of this underground resistance group where they get like uh, passports to jewish people so that they can leave germany um and get like fake passports and so mm-hmm. she's a part of like a jewish resistance group and she mm-hmm. ends up in her group one of her friends is the nanny for a like mm-hmm. award one nazi mother like one of the prizes of like mm-hmm. raising the best future nazis awards things mm-hmm. arian top Aryan mother award or something mm-hmm. like that they're like out one night and so the, these group of of girls go throughout berlin posing as non-jewish women despite the fact that they are and there's even a mm-hmm. line that the jewish girl who's the nanny says like oh my employer says that like she can even like smell jewish people like like she can like sniff them out and then in the scene yeah, when they yeah. meet this is like really early in the movie. The one who ends up falling in love with her says, "Oh, smell my perfume," um, <laughs> or, or 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 no, she says she says, "Guess what scent this is," uh-huh. and sticks out her her wrist. And then the woman who is the Nazi is like Chanel number no. five or something <laughs> like that. Like and then and then all the girls like all the group of friends like start like laugh like they're like sweating bullets. They're like. <sighs> Oh my god. Like that because like they're because they're in one of the clubs that like all of the Nazis yeah, are in, like yeah. one of the top Nazi clubs. And so like if they get caught like it's <laughs> it's, it's over. And this, <laughs> yeah. And this girl's like literally plaguing with her life. <laughs> and then like the wife is like some French and then they're like, "Yes." And like all of her friends are like, "Why would you, why would you do that?" Um <laughs> Wait, when was then, this movie anyway, made? When was this released? It was made in 1999. It's a German movie. Like, it's in German. Uh-huh. I watched it with English subtitles. And the actresses Why is the title German. French? Oh, so it's based off of a true story. This is a true story. There's also a documentary by the same name, colon, true story. And Amy and Jaguar were their code names for when they wrote letters to each other. Oh, wait. Because, why like, is this familiar? Amy and Jaguar. Not only are they, like, 
Jewish and uh-huh. lesbian and white, but also lesbians. And the mom is like married to a soldier who's fighting, but like in Europe, like on the German front, but like isn't home. Mm-hmm. And they end up being like bestie gal pals, but like also lesbians. <laughs> <laughs> so like, like she like goes to the house and like because her husband's away, she's like, oh, I'm just helping because like her husband isn't home and she needs like yeah. an extra set Classic. of fucking classic but like they're actually like in love and so it's based on a true story the ending is very sad Mm -hmm. i'm gonna i'm gonna let you watch it i'm gonna let the audience not the not the sad ending if a movie doesn't have a happy ending girl well at least even melancholy at least like like the ending of um of uh portrait of a lady it's like that it's kind of like that okay but um People complain about historical fiction, sapphic movies, and and period pieces. It's like, no, I want some more. I would like more of it. I would like to see more. (laughs) But they need to be good. It's my favorite. It's my favorite genre. But anyways, this is really good. It's really, like, it is not a big movie. on. What's the title again? Amy and Jaguar, or Ame and Jaguar, if you want Mm -hmm. a slightly more French pronunciation. According to Letterboxd, it has only been watched by barely over 3,000 people. 3,510 members have logged that they have watched this movie. So... In contrast, let me let me, let me me look how many people mm-hmm. have read and reviewed The Vanishing Half. I'm gonna... Okay, here's my guess before looking <laughs> Finally up. I'm gonna me, guess... The one put, doing the niche recommendation and not the, like, me being like, the have you read one. Evelyn Hugo? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna guess that this has been read by at least 100,000 people. Let me check. Mm-hmm. 475,000 ratings. 475,000 ratings? Jesus. That's wild. Half a million people have rated What's this book average? on Goodreads. 4.21. Average star rating. On, letter- on Letterboxd, it's 3.7. What's See, on Goodreads, if the, fuck, if, the, if the rating is above like a 4.1, girl... <laughs> Because these bitches on Goodreads are 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 very, <laughs> they're 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 something else. Wait, let me look up um the folks on Letterbox be watching anything, but this is literally such a good movie and is so underrated, especially in conversations about lesbian cinema. This one is definitely not a big name. Like it's not Carol. You know, right, like, right, it's right. not something that, yeah. like, every, everyone seen, everyone yeah. has seen. And Passing on Goodreads only has 35,000 ratings, and um, the the star rating is 3.92, which is so interesting, because Let me it's a classic. The, the oh my god, wait! For the film already. On Goodreads, the readers also enjoyed, sexual, which, honestly, the readers also enjoyed portion on Goodreads means nothing, because it's very stupid, but the one that's right next to it is... The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, which is what I recommended last episode, I'm pretty sure. How many people had have, have read Passing, did you say? 35,000 people have rated it. On Letterboxd, uh, 20,000 people have marked that they have watched it. Gotcha, gotcha. And the rev- This is really interesting because the, the blurb right here is Nella Larson's fascinating exploration of race and identity, the inspiration for the upcoming Netflix film directed by Rebecca Hall. <laughs> like, that's the blurb on Goodreads. So, That's yeah, so but funny. I mean, the thing is, though, with Goodreads is that similar with Letterboxd, similarly to Letterboxd. Well, OK, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. I think people who watch movies are more likely to have Letterboxd accounts than people who read books are likely to have Goodreads accounts. Does that make sense? I've been reading this one book. I don't I there's zero evidence that I've even started it. 
Oh my god. Yeah, like... I literally forget. Yeah, like, I feel like people... You have to be a very particular kind of person to, like, casually use Goodreads. Like, I feel like people who use Goodreads mm-hmm. use Goodreads. Like, that's what I am. Mm-hmm. Whereas people who use Letterboxd can be a little bit more casual about it. It's, like, less of a commitment, Although I Although, I am a person who, like, uses Letterboxd. Letterboxd has people who use Letterboxd as well. Yeah. But I definitely agree that it's easier to be a casual Letterboxd user than it is to be a casual Goodreads user. People who are on film Twitter use Letterboxd like it's the fucking, I don't know, their journal or something. It is. It, <laughs> it, like, there's a, there's a good, like, probably for most of quarantine especially when i wasn't working letter i woke up checked letterbox before i would pick my nightly movies and i'd be like this letter letterbox people follow me on letterbox check out my letterbox oh, today my because God. a hot review is about to drop in 2020 in maybe february or january i challenged myself to watch a movie every single day and i did mm-hmm. it I kept on falling asleep though because I was in the middle of a lot of things, <laughs> a lot of a lot of responsibilities. So that was not really a great. In twenty twenty, I watched the entirety of one of my favorite actresses' filmography, and so I'd watch one of her movies every single day. And at the yeah. time, that was forty nine movies. Jesus I Christ! Think. Some of them were short films though. Yeah. Took me for freaking ever to find some of them. Some of them were like very, very niche. deep. Yeah. Deep. If I were to guess in terms of stats, like if 475,000 people rated, rated The Vanishing mm-hmm. Half on Goodreads, at least double that amount have read it. You know what I mean? Like, because at least double mm-hmm. that, at least there's a portion of people who read it and didn't rate it. So mm-hmm. if you bump that up to maybe like, you know, 500,000. But then there's so many people who don't who read it and haven't, don't have an account. So like, this book has got, and also this book has gotten like millions of sales. So come on now, you know? Yeah, it's just been universally enjoyed in a way that the movie hasn't been universally enjoyed and that the book hasn't been universally enjoyed. It's more, passing is more of like, it's like a niche, like fucking, I don't know. It's for, it's for the snobs. It's for the, it's for the literary snobs and it's for the movie snobs. Mm-hmm. What the movie and the book mm-hmm. are for. But there, it's still it's worth it. I like it. It's still worth it though. That, I mean, I love the book. Mm-hmm. I, so good. Like such a good book. And the movie is really great as well, so. Mm-hmm. You rated it a 4, right? Yeah. 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 I rated it a 4.5. Yeah. So. I, I have this thing where if I've read something before I've watched it, when I watch it, it'll automatically be a star lower. It doesn't even matter. <laughs> like, because my own preconceived notions of something, it just, mm-hmm. I'm just so attached to it that, like, once I'm presented with another version of it, it just makes me, which is why I'm really glad that I never read the, the Fingersmith before I watched The Handmaiden. Otherwise, I would not have loved that movie the way that I do. Um, and even to this day, I'm really afraid to read Sarah Waters because I'm afraid that it's just not going to live up to my joy and my love. Anyway, but that's all we have for you today. Um, we talked about Taylor Swift things. We talked about our queer theory TM. We talked about our Gaylor theories, of course. And then we discussed mm-hmm. the recent release passing and then its relationship to other works and media that we have also enjoyed and found a lot of meaning from. Follow me on Twitter at Renaissance. First E is an X. Follow me on Instagram at Renaissance Marie. Follow me on TikTok at Renaissance Marie. And the uh, podcast accounts on Twitter is at the Lavender Pod. On Letterbox is at the Lavender Pod. On Instagram is at the Lavender Menace Pod, and on TikTok is at the Lavender Menace Pod. You can find me on Twitter at a Sunny Book Nook. 
my booktube at a sunny book nook my instagram sunny with a camera my letterbox sunny in st louis my goodreads sunny book nook yeah, my goodreads renaissance marine but like i said really bad at updating <laughs> yeah i update okay people who are friends with me or follow me on goodreads say that they get like notifications or emails for my updates like genuinely multiple times a day and i'm like if that's what you're getting imagine me imagine what i'm doing <laughs> multiple times a day um oh anyway yeah oh subscribe to our patreon if you want to see the video recording of this and also subscribe to our patreon if you want to like join in on us when we tell a party movies for the episodes together uh, mm-hmm. and that way like if you message us and you know if you let us know that you're a patron at that tier level at which you can get access to that which i think is like maybe 15 dollars a month or something like that um, then we can like plan out days to like watch things and stuff Mm -hmm. and discuss things and there's a bunch of other perks and like early access and bonus content and behind the scenes stuff if you subscribe to our patreon so you should do that patreon.com slash the lavender menace so yeah that's all we have for you today awesome bye bye